This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Everybody, to another episode of the Keeper Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson and their Keeper Pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. We got up early this morning, Brian. I'm living the fantasy life up late last night, watching the games, prepping the show, went to bed, got up this morning at 10, drank some coffee, put on my gatkas, and here we are ready to record. And I'm, of course, here with my friend and co host, the fantasy hockey robot, Brian Cobb. Let's do this. Don't forget that slice of banana bread that you ate, Elon, in preparation for this show. So, yes, good morning to you. Good afternoon, good evening to anybody listening. That's the beauty of podcasting. Listen anytime you want, but know that we were working very hard late last night and early this morning to get another action-packed, very helpful episode of Keeping Carlson out to you. Yeah, I mean, listen anytime you want for sure, but I feel like the advice we give today might not be as valuable, let's say, in a year from now. So I'd recommend maybe checking it out a little sooner because we're going to be talking more about what happened last week than, you know, or, and you guys get what I'm talking about. But we got a big show today. Lots of like injuries and outjuries, uh, you know, hot streaks, cold streaks, line changes, all the stuff you come to Keeping Carlson for. We're going to get you up to speed on everything going on and we'll give you our opinions, our advice along the way of whether you should be adding, dropping these players, what you should be doing. Of course, before we get started, another place where you can get all this kinds of fantasy fantastic advice is at dauberhockey.com it is your source for fantasy hockey news notes stats it's the best articles every day the tools at frozen tools i use it to prep the show every single week i love the game day line combinations i'm like last night while i was prepping the show i was able to check like in the middle of the late bruins kings game i was able to go and see oh jeff carter's playing today oh he's playing on the second line oh he bumped tyler Toffoli from the top power play like you're seeing that stuff in real time such a great site like starting goalies every day it's the best dauberhockey.com brian let's get started with the biggest news of the year, for sure, bar none, and not even in hockey, in, in all the world. Eric Carlson finally returned yesterday. Our boy, the great Eric Carlson, returned from his nine-game absence with what turned out to be a groin injury. He played in the All-Star game in between. It better not be the case that he, like, aggravated something in the All-Star game. I don't think that happened. But, like, that was so frustrating, especially if you're in a league that doesn't have IR plus spots. You had to just sit with Eric Carlson day-to-day on your roster, eating up a spot, not playing, not playing, not playing. It was uh, like it was very painful, but he is back. He came back yesterday. He did his best to make it up to his owners. Uh, you know, yesterday he picked up a power play assist just three minutes and 45 seconds into the game on a Timo Meyer goal. So that was really exciting to see Eric Carlson back on the score sheet. End of the game, no shots. That's kind of weird. He ended with just that assist, four blocks. So that's okay. All right, Carlson's assist brought him to 44 points in 48 games. 
And that's like with that cold offensive start he had at the start of the year. Remember, he was like really cold, wasn't getting that many points, maybe half point per game. At this point, 44 points in 48 games, looks like he's got a decent chance to get up to a point per game by the end of the season. Brian, do you think that is possible? Am I going too far? I'm just so happy to have Eric Carlson back. I don't really have a fantasy advice question about him. He's so good. We're all so happy to have Eric Carlson back, even though like he's been back for a while. So he, he's come back in two ways this year, right? He was cold to start the season. We weren't sure oh, what's going on. Can Eric Carlson produce in San Jose? And then, of course, he does. And then he gets injured. And now he's back again. So he's been back twice this year. And the lesson is never fear when Eric Carlson is here. It's exciting that he got that power play assist. But you also need to acknowledge that he got that set up power play assist uh, having returned to the second power play unit, which I'm I'm really just setting this up to sound worse than it actually is, because on that second unit in San Jose, Carlson's working with Timo Meyer, Joe Thornton, Evander Kane, and Mark Edward Vlasic. But those other three guys are really great guys to be working a power play with. So Elon, I am on board with you, even if he's on the second power play, quote unquote, uh, he can still be a point per game player. I look at Carlson's numbers and I see him getting the best team support he's ever had in his career. Five on five team shot attempts are just flooding in while he's on the ice. And then I look at Carlson's individual stats and he's putting more shots towards and on net himself than ever before. Like this is another gear of Eric Carlson that has been unlocked by, uh, I don't think him necessarily taking a step forward, but him being surrounded by such a competent and dangerous team. Like this is not all individual, the progress we're seeing from him. He's definitely enabled by the talent around him, but damn, it's exciting to see Carlson averaging five more five on five shot attempts per 60 minutes than any other year in his career. And I know that might not mean much to you, five more shot attempts per 60 minutes, but that is a huge jump. Like usually if I say a player's shot rates have risen, maybe they've gone up like one or two shots per 60 minutes. Uh, but Carlson has gone from about 14 shot attempts per 60 minutes to 19 shot attempts per 60 minutes at five on five. And that is a massive, massive jump. And guess what? This is all happening while Carlson sees the lowest five on five shooting percentage of his career. He's scored on fewer than 1% of his five-on-five shots on goal when he's typically been a 7 or 8% shooter more often than not. And so you look at, like, is he just getting a whole bunch of quantity and sacrificing quality? No, he's not. His individual expected goals rates are holding steady from past years too. So he's just adding quantity to the quality that's already there or quality to the quantity. In any case, Eric Carlson is amazing. Own him, keep him, love him. And it's going to be so fun to see what he decides to do this offseason. Like the moment the San Jose Sharks year is over, that's all going to kick into overdrive. And I'm very excited to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, he'll be on his Stanley Cup celebration parade, holding the cup in one hand, holding his cell phone in his other hand, talking to his agent, deciding what to do next. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'd like it for the Sharks to win the cup and for him to then stay in San Jose because I already got my Sharks hat. I'm ready to go for next year, but I'll get a new hat if I need to. So, okay, Brian... Let's talk about the rest of these San Jose Sharks. You did say how he's only on the second power play, and then you said, but he's playing with a lot of great players. By the way, why did you throw shade at Mark Edward Vlasic? He's a really good player. I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's not that good anymore. I mean, okay, give him a break. He's not bad. <laughs> uh, what do you mean he's not bad? You think he's bad? I'm okay, not he's... Derail, I want to derail the show. Why do you say Mark <laughs> Edward Vlasic is bad? He just has not been the player he has been for several years. Like, this has not been his best season. He's been on bad, shaky terms with the coach. 
He's seen his deployment get shaken up. Uh, he's just not the steady, reliable defensive guy that he had been for past years. And Elon, I haven't actually checked his point totals lately, but do you know where he's at? Like he used to be someone who you'd be like, oh yeah, maybe he'll get a point here and there, 35 point pace with some peripherals. What do you have him at? No, I mean, okay. He's obviously not playing that well this season. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to go too far to Mark Edward Vlasic, but just, you know, to be on like the second power play is not like so bad. I, I feel like you could do worse. But okay, Brian. What? You, what? I, but the other guys are so, like, it doesn't even matter if Mark Edward, you could put me on that second power play unit with the Carlson and those three other guys, and it would be just as good. I guess so. Also, the, the main concern to me about Carlson being on the second power play is the lower ice time, right? The lower amount of time overall on the power play. But that could change. Like, right now, Kevin LeBanc is on the top power play. Like, the thing is, San Jose's rolling. They're doing so well that why should they change anything up? When Carlson was injured, LeBanc got on that top power play, and he's been doing great. The Sharks didn't miss a beat without Carlson. They won six games in a row before they lost to the Capitals on Thursday and then they said all right let's bring Carlson back I guess we can't win them all without him uh and just to just to put a bow on this Elon Mark Edward Vlasic 20 point paces here this is uh in every measure going to be his worst career year like even if you look at his peripherals 74 blocks in 49 games boo bad So fine. If you have Mark Edward Vlasic, he's a snoozer, drop him. Okay, Brian, let's talk about some of these other Sharks, though, because since we're on the team, like, there's a lot of players on the team that are so good. Like, I really feel like this team's going to take a run at the Cup, just looking at this depth. Like, you got Brent Burns, 64 points in 59 games on the season. This guy's having a career year when, you know, like, sometimes these players get older, you think, okay, well, the decline, when's the decline going to come for Brent Burns? It's hard to predict when the decline's going to come when he's doing as well as he's ever done. You got Joe Pavelski, 12 points in his last 10 games. He's playing on a line with Meyer and Couture. I guess that's the top line. Both of those guys are great like not even a point like discussing any of these guys in terms of fantasy relevance like everyone knows that you want to have these guys evander kane has 21 points in his last 16 games he's pacing for 70 points on the season like who would have predicted this he's also having a career year he's playing with hurdle and donskoy and speaking of hurdle 12 points in his last eight games so he's going insane he actually is pointless in three for what it's worth but i don't know you could let us know if you're worried about tomas hurdle lebank like we mentioned he has goals in three straight including a hat trick versus the oilers or he did before he went pointless yesterday versus the canucks uh, lebank he's been playing on the third line with thornton and marcus Sorensen, but also on the top power play like i mentioned and joe thornton by the way you know, he had been pretty slow this season. He's seemed to have fallen into being more of a complimentary player, but even he's been getting in on a lot of the offense, 13 points in his last 16 games. And he recently passed Timo Solani for 15th in all time points. And he's only nine points away from Stan Mikita to get up to 14th. So Joe Thornton, I think he's going to get there. He only needs nine more points. So Brian, what should I ask you here? The Sharks are so good. They play four times next week. Who would be your stream of choice? Like obviously a lot of these guys aren't going to be available in free agency, but let's say if LeBanc, Donskoy, and Joe Thornton are available. Are any of these guys on your radar to add? And is the general idea just try to get any shark in like the top nine because you know you're going to get something? That is the general theme. All these guys make good streamers. Kevin LeBanc obviously is the one who stands out the most with that hat trick he got. Uh, but that hat trick was in the midst of a stretch where he scored five times on six shots over three games, which dampens my own excitement towards running out and adding LeBanc. So if I'm picking one Sharks forward out of the group you just mentioned to get on my team looking past a one or two game stream. I'm going to go Joe Thornton. First off, he's playing on Eric Carlson's power play unit and all his other numbers look the most sustainable. Like on a nightly basis, maybe Don Scoy and LeBanc have equal chance of putting up points, but they also run very hot and cold. So I'll take Thornton and the kind of impressive consistency that you just called to uh, Thornton is also the only one of those three who I trust to be good enough to help create offense on any line he plays. 
rather than being totally out of luck if he's, you know, not playing with two great guys or if he's only stuck with just one guy or zero other offensive drivers. So I'm going to go Thornton, then probably LeBanc, then Donskoy. How about you? You want to disagree on this too? What, what else did I disagree on? Mark Edward Vlasic. <laughs> I didn't disagree. I just didn't know why you had to be mean to him. But okay, yeah. Uh, I guess I'll disagree, actually. Thornton, especially in multi-category leagues, right? He's like pretty much giving you assists and not much more. Plus, when he's on the second power play, you're not going to expect so many of those assists to be power play assists. So yeah, I'd probably rather Donskoy just because he's playing with the great Evander Kane right now and the also great Tomas Hurdle. By the way, speaking of Evander Kane... Uh, we had an argument yesterday on faith. That's something we've been disagreeing about. There's a lot of people, including yourself, Brian, really poo-pooed that seven-year, $49 million contract that he signed over the summer. So far, looks to be worth every penny. Like I said, is it Mia culpa time for everyone who said, oh man, what are the Sharks doing signing this big long-term contract? Or do you stand by it still having been a mistake, even though he's producing like he has been? You have to look at the contract on the day it was signed, right? It was seven years, $7 million for a guy who really had never broken out entirely on a consistent basis in his career, was still somewhat of an unknown quantity, didn't have a whole lot of leverage in in negotiations, or you wouldn't have at least thought he did. I don't know how many teams would have been ready to give him that seven years, $7 million. Uh, So when you're saying... It looks like a great contract now. That's not really how you can judge a contract, right? You have to judge it based on the day it was signed. (laughs) Unless, of course, you're saying that the San Jose scouting department and general manager Doug Wilson were just incredibly spot on. Like they knew exactly what they were paying for before they paid for it because their talent evaluation was so strong. And I'm just not sure that they... uh, quite have that crystal ball so well that they should like i still think they overpaid uh, okay but i, I don't know, to me and we don't have to get too into i think it's a little bit of a weaselly response you're like basically you're saying that no matter what Ev- uh, evander kane does for like the rest of this contract there's we're not going to be able no, to call no, it a good I'm decision saying, i'm saying he can make that contract look like great value and it is at the moment but it doesn't mean it was a smart choice at the time. <laughs> Can't both those things be true? No, I think that's so, it's so like, uh, obviously the Sharks saw something in him and thought that it was worth getting that term and money and thought it would be worthwhile. You, just, rather- you, you have a lot of faith in NHL front offices. I, I'm not saying that it will turn out to be a good contract. I'm saying if it does, if he does play well for the next five, six seasons, I want to be able to say they made a smart decision. You're saying like, no matter how he does, we're going to always go down in history on uh w- Wilson's grave it's gonna say signed a bad contract and it doesn't even matter like what happened but anyways okay we no it does on. matter what happened of course it matters okay. what happened but, so, but you're saying like I okay I don't All it's right. like making a trade and everyone being like oh man you lost that trade but then it turns out that you won the trade and like, no it was still a bad trade just because it turned out that you won the trade doesn't mean it was a smart trade like at some point we have to give people credit if they make a bet like anytime you sign a player or make a trade you're making a bet saying I think this player is going to do great there's no guarantees it's okay. possible that Evander Kane could have been bad but they but took if, a bet on him and he's doing well so you have but to give if him that, credit but if that bet could have been made at a lower cost well do you know then, that that's then the case then it's a bad bet no, I, I don't know, but at the time, it was it was a very strange choice to give this guy this much money and this much term. So again, unless the talent evaluators were so, so sure about Kane's talent um, that this was going to happen, they were going to get this value, I don't think you can fully give them credit. Like, yeah, it's great that they have uh, this player playing so well and get, get, getting so much value out of this contract, but it still doesn't justify 
Like in my mind, it doesn't justify right. the initial signing price unless you're saying, yeah, they nailed it. Like they they placed a bet and they nailed it. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that so far it's looking great. Like if I'm you gonna... put if you put down a bet on like 15 to 1 odds, right? And there's like a 7 to 1 odds option and the 15 to 1 odds option wins. Does that mean what does that mean? Okay, Brian, fine. Like, if you could find me, I don't even care that much. I'm just trying to say that so far, this contract is looking pretty good. And I'll bet you a lot of teams would be willing to pay $7 million a year for a 70-point player right now, like Evander Kane. Uh, let's move on. Okay, we got a lot to talk about. Tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. Let us know if you're Team Elon or Team Brian on this discussion. Um, we'll Marcus, also see what this looks like when Evander Kane is age, whatever. But you need to pay now to be able to have him... Like, you need to pay for those later years. Sorry, you wanted to move on. Yeah, of course. Like okay. If you win the cup this year, then it might be worth it. Okay. so Banners last forever. Marcus, the patron, one of our favorites, he wrote this down on our Facebook group. And so I'm going to read what he said to introduce the next player because it's better than anything I could have said. So Sunday, February 10th, 9 o'clock and 3 minutes p.m. Eastern time. I don't know why I said like that. 9.03 p.m. Eastern time. Quote, I love you, David Pasternak. Play whenever you want. I have every confidence that you will be fine. That's a quote by Elon Dubrovsky, myself, on last week's show. We were talking about how he had been bumped to the second line. And I was like, don't worry about it. This guy's going to be totally fine. Two hours later, news comes out. Here's a quote from a beat writer or something. At about 11.30 p.m., David reported to me that they were walking to their transportation location and that he fell and injured his thumb. We'll know better in two weeks what the definitive timeline is going to be. And then Marcus included a gif of Uncle Ben telling Peter Parker that with great power comes great responsibility. I'm getting blamed, Brian, for this past neck injury. I jinxed him. And it's very frustrating. Like these injuries that happen not even in a game. It's like, was this guy drunk? Like a lot of people are guessing that, but probably never know. But I mean, he was at this like charity dinner. I'm sure there were a couple of drinks or maybe he just tripped. But this is a real bummer. Like we don't even know when David Pasternak's going to be back from this thumb injury. Like they're saying they're going to reevaluate him in two weeks. They could reevaluate him and be like, okay, yeah, let's give him another two weeks. Very frustrating. I could have really used him in my couple matchup this week. I'm probably going to lose. Last week, we discussed how Pasternak had already been shifted to line two. We were talking about how Danton Heinen got a spot on line one with Marshan and Bergeron. Uh, so now with Pasternak out, we have Jake DeBrusque, who's been bumped up to the second line to play with Krejci and Peter Selleric. Uh, and Danton Heinen so far hasn't been taking as much advantage as DeBrusque over these last couple of games, like Friday and Saturday. Uh, Danton Heinen had goose eggs, like no goals, no assists, no shots. So he's been a real disappointment to everyone who grabbed him. Jake DeBrusque, on the other hand, has now scored in three straight games and six points overall in that span. So I know I'm saying a lot of stuff here, Brian, but in general, what are your thoughts on the David Pasternak injury? Should people be at least confident that he'll be back in time for the fantasy playoffs? Or should people be trying to maybe trade him or like cut bait? Or, you know, on the other hand, trade for him if you think he will come back. Like, What would your strategy be if you either had David Pasternak right now? A lot of fantasy leagues have their trade deadline this week. I think the standard Yahoo default trade deadline is like this Thursday or something. So yeah, do you like hold Pasternak or do you go for him? Or do you try to trade him away now and not hold the risk kind of similar to a Taylor Hall situation? And also what are your thoughts on like Danton Heinen and Jake DeBrusque who seem like the main guys who benefit from this? Who would you want more between these two guys? If anything, like you think now Danton Heinen has a much better chance to hold this line one spot because there's no David Pasternak nipping at his heels. So your first question was what to do with David Pasternak heading into the the quickly approaching fantasy trade deadline in a lot of leagues. Well, I googled broken thumb recovery time and learned that if you suspect you have a broken thumb, you should immediately seek medical help. So a little PSA to start the show. Everybody check your thumbs, please, and get them looked at right away if something's not right. Also, please do not accept any medical advice from us. I also learned 
that recovery time for a broken thumb can usually be between two and six weeks. And so I looked at the NHL standings to see just how much breathing room Boston has if they want to be cautious and just wait until the end of March for Pasternak to come back. And I don't think they have that luxury. They're currently five points up on Montreal and seven points up on Pittsburgh and Columbus. If two of those three teams can close the gap on the Bruins, then Boston's in trouble and Columbus actually has a couple games in hand. But how about the fact, and I'm actually going off on a tangent here, so we're leaving Boston for just a sec. But if the season ended today, Pittsburgh would miss the playoffs. And I'm saying this uh, when I say today, I mean 12 hours ago from our recording time. So the season ended on Saturday night at 11.30 p.m. Pittsburgh would have missed the playoffs. They have a plus 21 goal differential. It's the fifth best in the conference, but they sit behind Columbus with the same number of points and two more games played and fewer regulation or overtime wins. And then you have Buffalo with one game in hand on Pittsburgh, just four points back of the Penguins. How about it? Like this is a very tight race in the Eastern Conference when even Pittsburgh might not be able to squeak into the playoffs. Anyway, Without David Pasternak going back to the Bruins, I think Boston still does okay. But I think this sort of closeness and coziness uh, in the standings may be some silver lining for Pasternak's owners to think that the Bruins will do all they can to get him back in the lineup as soon as possible, especially with first round home ice advantage at stake, even if the other chasing teams don't catch up enough to to push the Bruins out of a playoff spot. Um, Also, the injuries to Pasternak's left thumb and as a right-handed shooter, Maybe that lets him come back a touch earlier. Like, I don't know. I'm just guessing here, right? Like, I don't even know if you want Pasternak back if his non-shooting hand thumb is not 100%. Look, the bottom line is, if your fantasy playoffs begin two or three weeks from now, you can hold your breath and hope some version of Pasternak is back. If you're in a very comfortable spot in your standings and you don't own Pasternak, you should go ahead and kick tires to see what it costs to get him. And if you can take a downgrade in your lineup for like three or four weeks and are okay with making a risky play that could not pay off, then see if you can get Pasternak for below his healthy value. Otherwise, stay away. Like this isn't the kind of injury that keeps a guy out for so long, but the high end of the recovery time is six weeks. That's nearly the rest of the season. So you need to be cautious if you are looking to trade for David Pasternak. If you own him, it's all about urgency, right? Do you need the help right away? Is that going to be more important than you getting the help potentially in three or four weeks? That's a conversation for you to have with your managerial self. Uh, You asked me also, Elon, about Danton Heinen and Jake DeBrusque, who I'd prefer. It's really close between them. DeBrusque, I think, is the better player. And he gets the best opportunities on the power play with Bergeron and Marchand. So I'm going to go with Jake DeBrusque. Uh, Who knows? Maybe DeBrusque even gets bumped up to the top line. And if that happens, Danton Heinen loses a lot of values. For me, I'd be happy to take DeBrusque as the guy who's doing well already in decent minutes and has room to rise, rather than Heinen, who may be doing similarly well at the moment, but has more apparent room to fall in his deployment. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I will agree with you and say that if you rush to grab Danton Heinen when we saw that he was on the top line, and if Jake DeBrusque is available, I might make that swap as well. But it could definitely go either way. It was very disappointing, though, like I said, for Heinen to give not even a shot over the weekend for that Friday-Saturday stretch. Uh, Tuka Rask, I wanted to talk about the goalies a little bit since we haven't done it for a while. Rask stopped 23 of 25 in the 4-2 win over LA last night. That was actually his first good game in a little while. He had two straight sub-900 save percentage games, while Yaroslav Halak had had two great games in a row. He beat Colorado 
Colorado two to one, and then he shut out the Ducks, which I know isn't that hard of a feat, but still, you got to give him credit. So I was just starting to wonder, maybe before yesterday's, yesterday's game, more so if Yaroslav Halak is maybe inching back to maybe getting into at least a 50-50 split, because it had looked a couple of weeks ago like, okay, this is definitely Tuka Rask's net again, and maybe Harlock will play like one out of every three games. Do you think we're back to 50-50, or now that Tuka Rask played well, are we just basically where we were before? Like, it's, I don't know. Maybe it's not even worth discussing, but I'm just curious to get your current take on the Boston goalie situation. My my current take can be always summarized as uh, when one of Halak or Rask struggles, the other is going to be there to step right up. And from what we know, uh, Rask is certainly prone to struggling, and Halak has been far from perfect this year as well. So the pendulum... Like it's swinging right now. It's probably going to swing back and forth a couple more times with the same as always that Boston would prefer Rask run with it. But if he can't, they're not going to die on that hill because they are in a bit of a playoff race. If not just for a playoff spot, then for home ice advantage. And they can't really afford to be playing a goalie who is not performing up to snuff. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think Brett has got it in the chat room. He says 60-40 Rask over Halak. That's probably the case. Like you say, unless that Tuka Rask starts to struggle and then obviously something changes. He struggled for a couple of games, played good in the last game, so we're probably back at square one. I don't really want Brian to talk about the Anaheim Ducks again this week. We do it every week, but we have to because they had another crazy week with the goalies. John Gibson was hurt back on the 7th, so then Chad Johnson got the start already a week ago Saturday, and he was rocked by Philly. He got pulled in the first after letting in four goals, and this other guy, Kevin Boyle came in in relief. He stopped 24 of 26 in relief in that 6-2 loss to Philadelphia. Then Chad Johnson got hit in the head by a puck on Tuesday in practice and was put on injured reserve. And in a corresponding move, Ryan Miller, who's been injured forever, he was finally taken off injured reserve for his knee injury. But it was Kevin Boyle who got the start on Wednesday versus Vancouver with Ryan Miller being the backup. Like, how crazy is it? Like, just a week before, it was John Gibson and Chad Johnson. Now it's Kevin Boyle and Ryan Miller. So Kevin Boyle gets the start against Vancouver. I'm sure no one added this guy in fantasy because Anaheim has been so, so terrible. And he got a shutout. He stopped 35 shots. The Ducks were somehow able to score a single goal, which was enough to get them the win. So they won their first game in forever. That was their first win in eight games. Boyle then got the start on Friday. He played well again. He stopped 26 of 28 shots versus Boston. Again, like no run support. It was a shutout. 3 nothing loss for uh, the Bruins over Anaheim. But again, Kevin Boyle had a good game. So Brian, like, what do we do now with this Anaheim goalie situation if we're playing fantasy hockey, which of course we all are. I, I had John Gibson in one league or have him i put him in ir i didn't pick up boyle like normally when you have a starting goalie and he gets injured you want to grab the other guy but one of the main reasons i didn't pick up kevin boyle even if i thought that starts were worthwhile even on a bad team i think yeah, probably ryan miller is going to get the majority of the starts he's like the guy who's supposed to be the backup now it looks like maybe kevin boyle is the guy that's gonna be the starter going forward at least until john gibson comes back and by the way we don't even know when gibson is gonna return so okay i gotta turn this into a question first of all brian who is kevin boyle who is this guy? Is it surprising that he's doing so well? Or is this a guy with a great pedigree? Should people be going out to grab Kevin Boyle? Should they be going out to grab Ryan Miller? Like, does it even matter? Like, is Anaheim going to ever score a goal to give either of these goalies a good chance to win if they're not playing Vancouver? We've seen so much new goalie magic this year and to some extent last year also. So who am I to say that Kevin Boyle can't get in on that to bring some of his own magical early season, early career performances to the fold? Uh, who is Kevin Boyle? Well, he's 26 years old, was undrafted out of college, but has stuck with the Ducks organization over three seasons, sharing time for their AHL team the past couple of years after moving out of the ECHL. And then moving into the number one role for AHL San Diego Gulls 
this season. Uh, pretty decent AHL numbers over the last couple of years. He was an all-star this year, even though his numbers haven't been that good there this year. Um, that's about the book on him. Uh, there's not much more to say about Kevin Boyle. Apparently his college career like was not great to start, and then it went back on track when he moved schools. I mean, I don't know what to say about this guy or what, what tea leaves there even are to read, but that said... There doesn't need to be much of a book on any of these guys. He is likely as good an option as Ryan Miller could be. I would be a fool to try and predict the goalie situation. Both guys could catch fire in a good way or in a bad way, as in tires or garbage. But I would be reluctant to rely too hard on any goalie tasked with with tending the Ducks crease on any given night. Aside from the Senators, that could be the worst team to be the last line of defense on. Yeah, so I guess all we could do is let people know there is a guy named Kevin Boyle. He is doing well and play him at your own risk. And since we're talking about this Anaheim team, we had a question from patron Brett on the Facebook group and also Brett, another Brett, actually, that's fun, in the chat room here is also asking us to talk about the Canucks forward. So let's just say, Getzlaff and Raquel. At this point, like, we're down, like, you know, before we were talking about, like, Corey Perry and maybe guys like, I don't know, Sprong or whatever. Are these guys worth adding? So, for sure, none of those guys are worth adding. Now we're at the last two, Getzlaff and Raquel. Are they at least worth owning in fantasy right now? Brett? from the Facebook group asked or he said that he recently added Getzoff and Raquel after they were dropped by their other owners seems like oh man I gotta grab these guys especially as Anaheim as we keep saying has that great off day schedule so you can get so many more games played if you own a Ducks player over someone else but at this point Ryan Getzoff four points in his last 11 games Raquel has three points in that stretch and only two points in his last 10 so he's been even worse is it time to just say drop all Ducks? Forget about the schedule. They're not getting you points. They're not getting you points. Honestly, when I saw this question on the Facebook group about like, should Brett, what should he do with Getzlaff and Raquel? I just responded with the uh, vomit emoji because I couldn't think of any actual response to say. Like, it doesn't seem like these guys are worth owning, but at the same time, it's so hard to drop Getzlaff and Raquel, right? It really is hard to drop them. And of course, the contextual need to know here is what other options are there? If you're dropping these two, who are you adding? Is it Kevin LeBanc? If it is, I'd rather keep Getzlaff and Raquel. Uh, so you've got to, obviously, like tweet at us if you have a specific guy you're wondering whether to drop them for. The thing about Getzlaff and Raquel that makes them still hard to drop is they still have the upside. But of course, at this point, it's hard to remain faithful that they or any Ducks have chance of realizing that upside in what's become an awful season for Anaheim. So by all means, consider who else is available in your free agent pool. But I'll also add that if you're looking beyond a one-year format, if you're in a keeper format, this could be a good time to buy low on someone like Getzlaff, who someone's thinking, oh yeah, he's done, forget him. I think he's probably still got at least another good year in him. And Raquel, who has another several good years still in him. Yeah, so, or if you're not in the Keeper League, guys, to keep in mind to maybe draft late next year and you might get a nice late round draft pick. Brian, but I'm not going to let you get out of it that easily, of course. Just be like, oh, it depends who's in free agency. Let me throw you some names. Let's say your free agency is filled of guys around the level of like Andre Palat, uh, Jason Zucker, uh, you know, like that type of level. Like guys who generally are good to get you a point every once in a while, not like a sure thing, but, you know, currently doing better than Getzlaff and Raquel. What would you say if that's the free agent landscape? S- similar to our joint league, which I know you know the free agent landscape so well. Very well, obviously. It's close. It also depends on your, like, this is also where you look at your position in the standings and how you're going to manage your team. If you need the help immediately, you might not, want to wait on these guys, even though I still think Getzlaff and Raquel are as likely to point on any given night as Palat and Zucker. 
So it's really hard to pick between the two. I think I would stick with Getzlaff and Raquel because of their upside, but I also might just go with the guys with the better schedule, which is often Getzlaff and Raquel. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. You look at like Ricard Raquel, I used like last year he also took a lot more shots, right? He's getting two shots per game every single game. This is really down for him. Anaheim cannot get the puck out of their own end or sustain any offensive pressure. So I don't think that's on him. Yeah, okay. So I guess you can hold on if your free agent pool is really weak, like Sin is saying here in the chat room. But if you have decent options, I'd be okay with swapping out. Also, if you have decent options in free agency that are available, that probably means other owners might not want to jump on Getzlaff and Raquel themselves. So maybe you could drop them and then just keep a close eye. And if you see any signs of life, you could maybe jump back on. Okay, Brian, we definitely haven't gotten as far as I thought we would at this point in the show. I guess those arguments over on San Jose slowed us down a bit. But before we go to our next team, I do want to take a quick stop to thank a sponsor for this week's episode, which are our friends over at SeatGeek. That's right. Every single week, Keeping Carlson is brought to you by SeatGeek. It is the best place online to get tickets to any kind of event. There's a lot of different sites out there that you could use to buy tickets, but you don't know about the reliability. Also, it's sometimes difficult to find the tickets that you want. SeatGeek has that all covered. First of all, as far as the reliability goes, 100% guarantee. Everything is backed up. You're not going to get screwed over. Also, they just make it so easy to get your tickets. Like They put millions of tickets into one place. You can easily find the seats you want for the price that you're willing to pay. I really like how you could sort by value. You could sort by price. You could even look at the cool image. You see, I think it's green means it's a good value seat. And you can kind of look at the map of the stadium and decide like what ticket is going to be worth it for me. Like, Brian, I actually even just like taking out the SeatGeek app, like I like to say, and, you know, see what's going on in my city or where I'm going and see if there's something fun to do. Uh, There's obviously hockey games going on. And right now the games are going to be a lot more intense, especially for teams like you're saying, Brian, like Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Boston, like these teams are still jockeying for playoff positions or maybe even to make the playoffs. These are going to be really fun atmospheres. You want to get to these games or you could go to like a concert. Brian, let's play our weekly game of I'm going to tell you two concerts and you try to guess which one has more expensive tickets on SeatGeek. I'm looking back in Toronto. We haven't been there for a while. And I'm seeing a couple interesting shows coming this summer in July that are both like people who I would think would be like the headliner, but it's sort of flipped. So there's a band called Heart, but then it says Heart with Cheryl Crow. So I don't know if like now this is a new band that has Cheryl Crow or if it's like a concert of like Heart and then Cheryl Crow is like the opener. So that's one option. And maybe you could also tell me your knowledge of Heart with Cheryl Crow. Then another option, you could see Queen, but with Adam Lambert. I guess, instead of Freddie Mercury. So those are two options. You can see Heart with Sheryl Crow or you could see Queen with Adam Lambert. What would be uh, the one that you expect to be more expensive on SeatGeek? Well, anybody who played Guitar Hero 3 knows Heart because uh, the track Barracuda was in that edition of Guitar Hero. Uh, Crazy on You, also a classic Heart track. But I think here, uh, like present day with Bohemian Rhapsody just having come out the movie, the Queen tickets have to be worth a lot more. Yeah, it, it's a landslide. Queen, $219 on SeatGeek. But hey, you could even get it for a little bit cheaper. You could see Hart and Cheryl Crow for almost free. But go ahead, Brian. Tell us how our listeners could get $10 off these tickets. Yeah, whatever the price is on SeatGeek, you can save $10 on that. If it's your first SeatGeek purchase and you listen to our show, which you're doing right now, all you need to do is download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code KEEPING, before you make your first purchase, again, that's promo code KEEPING, and you will save $10 off your very first purchase on SeatGeek. SeatGeek, life's an event. They have the tickets. Boom. Okay, let's get back now to our outjuries section of the show and injuries. So Justin Schultz returned to the Pittsburgh Penguins yesterday in the crazy 5-4 loss to Mike Smith and the Calgary Flames. We'll bring up Mike Smith a little bit later on the show. But Schultz had an assist, a shot, a hit, a block. 
Only played 17 minutes and 12 seconds, but that was enough to get him at least a point. He's playing on a defensive pairing with Jack Johnson. Just as a reminder, we're only two years removed from that big Schultz breakout season where he put up 51 points in 78 games. Of course, many of those points came playing on the top power play with Chris Letang injured, and that's not the situation right now, thankfully. Uh, Last year, Justin Schultz fell back to a much less exciting 35-point pace. Right now, in this season, he's played five games, and he has five points. So a really good start for Justin Schultz and a nice return from his injury. What kind of pace are you expecting moving forward for a guy like Justin Schultz? Like Recently, we've talked about guys like Jacob Slavin and Aaron Ekblad, both of whom were on hot streaks. And Brian, you correctly called that they wouldn't last. If people are still holding on to these types of guys, Slavins and, and Ekblads, uh, would you make the swap for Justin Schultz if he's available in free agency? I might. I mean, remember that Justin Schultz collected those career-high totals uh, during his big breakout season almost entirely because of the 20 power play points he amassed uh, during that year. And he was able to rack many of those power play points up because Chris Letang missed 41 games due to injury. But now Letang has been reborn as some kind of Iron Man. He's suited up in all but five of Pittsburgh's last 140 games. So I just don't see that opportunity being there for Jolt with a healthy Latang uh, still to make Schultz a decent stream in a deeper league uh, just because he's surrounded by so much offensive talent, but he's not a guy I'm rostering in hopes of getting up above a 50 point pace again, 40 point pace would be a success for him in my mind, which going back to your original question puts him probably ahead of Slavin and roughly equal ground as Aaron Eckblad, maybe a touch higher, depending on what categories you're looking for. Yes, maybe it's a streaming situation. You're saying all these guys are probably somewhat similar. Yeah, so you could just switch back and forth depending on who's playing. Since we're on Pittsburgh, Brian, I guess at this point, we could tell people to drop Patrick Hornquist, right? He's pointless in 11 games now, playing in the bottom six forever. looks like Nick Bjugstad's taken his spot with Malcolm that he had every once in a while, and Brian Rust has taken that spot he sometimes had with Sidney Crosby. He's not even taking that many shots anymore. I know that there's always the possibility that Hornquist will get points. He's still on the top power play, but how can we recommend that people still hold on to this guy? I'm sure most people just ignored what we said last time and have like dropped him. But for anyone who's still holding on, can we call Patrick Hornquist officially a snoozer and tell people it's time to move on? Yes, absolutely. There's nothing to like about Patrick Hornquist's game right now, either on paper or on the ice. He looks kind of lost out there. A change of scenery. Like he seems like that, that could be a great trade. Uh, That'll help boost his value. Uh, So you can hope that happens. Uh, Otherwise, he's a snoozer. And even even if he gets traded, maybe he stays a snoozer. He's a snoozer. Point being, drop him. Yeah, obviously, if he gets traded now, he's on the top six playing with good players. That's a whole other story. But we'll get like if he goes to Edmonton, he's playing with Connor McDavid. Maybe we'll reassess. Okay, uh, let's go to New Jersey. Blake Coleman is injured. We already mentioned last week that his great run was over, so this is not a huge fantasy hit to everyone. But it does give me the opportunity to talk about the New Jersey Devils, who actually have some players on hot streaks right now, even while Taylor Hall continues to miss time. Namely, the top line of Nico Heischer, Marcus Johansson, and Jesper Bratt. All three are doing really, really well. Heischer picked up a goal and an assist versus the Wild yesterday. In that crazy comeback win, which we'll talk about in a bit, that brought he shared to six points in his last four games. He's now up to 42 points on 54 games on the season. That's a 64-point pace for Nico Heischer. I feel like just around a month ago, we were getting questions of, should I drop this guy? Hopefully you didn't because he's doing really well. He's putting up a really nice sophomore campaign. Then you have Marcus Johansson, who we talked about as being the most boring projection. Remember, Brian, I projected him for like half point per game in the summer. And then I was like exactly right when it was around the time of uh, Christmas time and New Year's. Well, this guy, Marcus Johansson, had a goal and an assist also in this game against the Wild. That gives him five points in his last four games. Uh, So he's doing really well lately. Jesper Bratt. Two assists versus the Wild. He's up to seven points in his last seven games. So this whole top line is looking very appealing right now. 
Meanwhile, we've got Kyle Palmieri not on the top line. He's on the second line with newly outjured Miles Wood and Travis Zajac, and he was doing nothing until he finally got that game against the Wild, where he scored a goal and an assist. Overall, though, Kyle Palmieri has just been plummeting in his value ever since Taylor Hall got injured. So, Brian, what are you thinking about all of these Devils? Are you into Brat or Johansson to keep this up? Like, are these the types of guys that you would potentially think of streaming in, or maybe even expecting them to be able to keep this up and hold a roster spot for a little while? Are either of them like better owns than Kyle? Palmieri at this point if they're playing on the top line with Nico Heischer like the Devils have a boring Tuesday Thursday schedule next week and I'll be honest I was considering dropping Palmieri after his game today versus Buffalo like before that nice outing versus the Wild I was thinking to myself okay I'm gonna get that game on Sunday versus Buffalo and then I might drop Palmieri next week now we had that one good game so I'm not so sure but I'm curious to get your general take on the value of all of these Devils players as we head into the stretch of the fantasy playoffs it's nice that we have a couple devils who started putting up points since we called them out for being terribly quiet without Taylor Hall on last week's show. But you're right to be uh, pretty apprehensive and thinking, can I drop all of these guys, not name Nico Heischer, uh, if especially if Palmieri's not playing on the top line? And speaking of that top line, I will take anybody on it. So I will look at Marcus Johansson and Jesper Bratt. Oh, excuse me, Jesper Bratt. I don't know why I had that little worst... Uh, whatever. Uh, how about Marcus Johansson playing 24 minutes Friday night at Minnesota? That's a ton of minutes. And the second time in eight days that he'd been given so many. And both of those games mark the highest single game time on ice totals of his career. So Marcus Johansson getting some very big bump in deployment. And how about Jesper Bratt putting eight shots on net at Chicago on Thursday night, very out of character for him. Only the third time in his career, he's registered more than four shots in a game, which doesn't even happen often in and of itself. But Brett then put three more shots on goal the next night at Minnesota. Something to watch to see if that continues. However, I don't really love either of these guys for continued offensive production. I would still prefer Kyle Palmieri to both of them because really, as good as Nico Heischer is, I don't think he's got enough lipstick to put on his line mates to help them look like first liners. And that could help Kyle Palmieri land back on the top line before long. It's kind of weird that New Jersey has been satisfied being a one-line team with Taylor Hall in the lineup for so long. And all of a sudden, now that he's out, they're trying to spread out their offense and like change their entire offensive tack. I don't get the point. Like, just keep Palmieri and Hischer together on the top line. Throw some third guy on there and hope that first line can carry you. Well, I don't know, Brian, because they had, when everyone was healthy, they were able to put Marcus Johansson and Jesper Bratt and Travis Zajac as the second line, which isn't so bad, considering now we're looking at Bratt and Johansson doing well on the top line. So, I don't know. I think it was okay before, but uh, this is what they're going with now. And yeah, obviously things can change, but not great for Palmieri. The interesting thing is actually Nico Heischer was the one who wasn't on the top power play in the last game, but he's the one getting the most points. Uh, Speaking of the Devils, how about Corey Schneider? This guy hadn't won a game in over a year. He came back from his injury recently, wasn't doing that great. He had, he had one good game, then one bad game. He wasn't even scheduled to play in this game against the Wild, but Keith Kincaid did Keith Kincaid things, and the team was down 4-1, to one, and Kincaid got pulled, and then Corey Schneider came in, and he stopped 15 of 15. They went to overtime, and the Devils won the game. Corey Schneider got his first win in over a year in a game he didn't even start. It's like a sports movie. So, Brian, here's my question. Is it ridiculous to think that now that Schneider has this monkey off his back, he's going to go on a big winning streak now? You know, he was losing every single game maybe he's gonna like win his next 10 games now to make up for it 
Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't know how I can really try and copy your enthusiasm in my answer. Of course, and of course, Corey Schneider picks up his first win by not actually playing 60 minutes. He looked good for 36 minutes, though. Um, but maybe we should just be nice, lay off, give this one to our pal Corey. He's waited long enough for this W. I imagine, like, maybe you could say it'll do something for his confidence. But remember last week when he stopped 27 out of 28 shots picked up a shootout loss for his efforts and he had a quote about how like he feels like he's getting his confidence in his game back and then he followed that up with an 879 and 861 uh save percentage in his next two games which is why Kincaid started the next one for Schneider to come in and on come on in relief so all this to say like I'm not going to hope that Corey Schneider's confidence magically comes back from one win don't go falling over yourself to get on the Schneid Okay, but okay, well, he's finally off the schneid, and now you're saying don't go on the schneid. But if you're looking at like a Kevin Boyle or a Corey Schneider, like the thing is, Keegan Kate is really bad, right? At this point, like last year, he stole the job from Schneider. At this point, I feel like this is Schneider's job to hold for as long as they decide not to bring up Mackenzie Blackwood. So if you need starts, Corey Schneider might be your guy, I think. But yeah, I, I mean, don't don't go crazy. Like we'll, we'll have to see a good five games in a row of him not being terrible before I can really I would- be confident. Yeah. I would settle for two. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, also, one big reason for that comeback win was Devin Dubnik totally imploded in that third period, letting the Devils come back. Dubnik now has one 900-plus save percentage game over his last six starts. All the rest have been terrible. Before that, though, he had a run of five great starts. So a lot of people are asking what to do with Devin Dubnik. Does he suck now? Or is this just typical 2018-19 goalie variance and owners should try to be patient or maybe even try to buy low on Devin Dubnik since he's slumping now before the trade deadline? Dubnik has low-key sucked for a little while. Maybe sucked is a strong word, but he's definitely been playing below the level of an average NHL goalie for a couple years at least. Uh, Never to the extent, though, that he has been failing this year. No goalie has given up more cumulative goals below the average expectation this year than Devin Dubnik. And if you look at that number as a rate, Dubnik still ranks in the bottom five in goal saved above average uh, in like Mike Smith, Jake Allen, Luongo, Talbot territory. And then you consider that Dubnik used to be a good fantasy own because, hey, he played for Minnesota, they're a competitive team. But the Wild are in this weird place right now. They have like a kind of competitive team, but no real path to contention. So if I own Dubnik, I don't want to be waiting on him to come around or the Wild to really come around, especially without knowing that Minnesota isn't going to just go ahead and have a fire sale before the trade deadline. I even saw an article discussing whether Dubnik or Stalock should be Minnesota's goalie going forward. So you know things are bad when. Okay, so you're saying don't buy low on Devin Dubnik. No. If you get him, if you can get him for very, very cheap, maybe worth a, a shot. But yeah, don't give a good player for him because he might just continue to be bad. Uh, speaking of goalies, we had a guy on Twitter, Nick DeSteff, asked us to talk about Corey Crawford, who apparently said he's feeling ready to play. Uh, I've seen other sources saying he may return as soon as next week. Then he was like feeling ill and he missed a practice. So who knows if that's going to push him back a little bit. But it seems like Corey Crawford is going to be playing again this season. We've been gushing about the Hawks over the last few weeks in terms of how many goals they've been scoring. So Crawford may be coming into a situation where he only needs to play like somewhat average to maybe get a win just because the Hawks are scoring so many goals. That said, in like 23 games that he has played this season, Crawford has not been average. He's been pretty below average, right? like a 902 save percentage overall. Do you think that Corey Crawford 
could make for a good goalie target at the trade deadline, or would you be steering clear from him as well? Also, is it fair to assume either way that Colin Delia is going to go back to the minors once Crawford is back? He had that really nice run, but Cam Ward has been getting more starts lately. I don't see a reason why Delia would stay up with a big club, especially since they don't necessarily need to win games. They're not actually going for a playoff spot, most likely. So if you're contemplating adding Corey Crawford, you need to really, really remember that until we actually see him in a game, standing there in the crease, uh, he's not back yet and anything could happen. You need to approach any Crawford injury news with extreme caution. So make sure you're doing that. Let's make the assumption that he is healthy and he does get back into the lineup. Um, well, Colin Delia has been a 916 goalie in 13 appearances for Chicago this year. And that's sort of the number to beat for Corey Crawford. Like that's what you would hope Corey Crawford could come in and do. We've always said how Crawford is a, has been a very good goalie for the, for Chicago lately and how he can put the team on his back and save their bacon. But I'm honestly pretty worried about his health and how it might affect his play. Like even if he is a hundred percent recovered, I feel like he shouldn't be on the ice. And I wonder if he feels that way too, somewhere deep down mentally. Anyway, whether to get Corey Crawford or not depends on how desperate for goaltending you are. I'm still not a believer in Chicago who look no different in their underlying team numbers. And when they were losing all the games instead of winning them, they just happened to be riding a nice PDO wave at the moment. And of course, Crawford could come in, put up some top-notch goaltending and help keep that wave rolling. Uh, But I just don't have a whole lot of faith in Chicago as a team. And to answer your question about Colin Delia, Elon, Corey Crawford is not in Chicago to split starts. So yeah, I imagine he goes back to Rockford where he can keep working on his game. Yeah, so if you are looking at people of free agency and you're holding Colin Delia, maybe you could just get ahead of it and drop him now. Though, like Brian says, Crawford isn't back yet, but word is he should be back soon. Uh, One more outtree, and then we'll get to the trades, and then we'll get to all the hot streaks and cold streaks. That's the main event of the show, right? But okay, one more outtree. Jeff Carter returned from his lower body injury yesterday uh, for the 4-2 loss versus the Bruins. He had no points, took three shots. I still feel like Jeff Carter's worth talking about on the show. Like, he should be fantasy relevant, though he's really had a very disappointing season. He only has 25 points in 52 games now. Anyways, he went back to the second line playing with Toffoli and Brendan Leipzig, and he also bumped Tyler Toffoli from the top power play. Do you see any chance of Jeff Carter turning things around to end the season? He's been a 65-plus point guy for the last three seasons. Of course, last season only played 27 games, but point pace over 65. Can he do it again? Or if Jeff Carter's in free agency, do you just leave him there? Or if you had him in your IR, do you like wait to bring him back into your lineup until he actually does something? Carter had a neat little run that ended the game before he uh, went on the shelf. Uh, Carter had two goals and four assists for six points in five games, 14 shots in those five games. He was looking a little like his old self. So I'm curious to see how Jeff Carter comes back from this injury. As we've mentioned through the season, something looks really off in his numbers this year. And if it weren't for that little run before he got injured, I would have been saying maybe he was playing injured this whole time and some time away uh, has helped him fully recover and rest, even if it wasn't the injury he left for, whatever, he might be healthier. I'm just curious to see how he comes back in any case. So let's hope that Jeff Carter comes back from this vacation stronger. I think he's worth a shot, right? LA plays Monday. So if you want to try him out for that game, see how that goes and then make your call from there. I would, uh, I would encourage it, but we've all been disappointed by Jeff Carter all season long. So don't get your hopes up too high. 
Yeah, but it's always rare to find someone with 65-plus point upside in free agency. So, yeah, I agree with you, Brian. Take a shot. Let's see. But, you know, have him on a very short leash. If he has, like, a bad game on Monday and then a bad game, like, on Thursday, maybe at that point you let him go before a Saturday's heavy schedule. By the way, Tyler Toffoli was on that great run of 11 points in 10 games. Now he's gone pointless into he's off the top power play now that Jeff Carter is back. If people added Tyler Toffoli during this amazing run, is it time to just say, like, thanks for your service and then send him back to free agency? Or do you still think he has anything left in him to give like i said like we said like they're playing monday versus washington so you might as well not drop him now if you're listening to this get that game on monday but after that maybe you dump tyler to instead of waiting for his next game on thursday yeah so to also had a fun little run uh now he's back to being kind of a fringe own though a healthy and happy jeff carter would probably make to a grade above that status there are a couple reasons to still be interested beyond just jeff carter um to was on that top power play unit while jeff carter was out but he wasn't relying on it for his production. Only two of his 11 points during this nice run came on the power play. Also, Jeff Carter, better line mate for Tyler Toffoli than Brendan Leipzig and Nate Thompson, but of course not as good a line mate as Kopitar, who Toffoli saw one game with just before Carter's return, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Just like Jeff Carter, Toffoli's worth holding for Monday. Let's see if both he and Carter can actually find their games at the same time. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, well, the Kings would need that because they could use some goal scoring. They weren't able to beat Tuka Rask. Maybe we shouldn't even give Rask so much credit for that good game he had yesterday because it was against the Kings, who have some trouble. So, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I would say hold Carter and Toffoli for Monday, which is an easy thing to say. And then after that, I might be willing to drop them, depending on who's available. You can always tweet at us at Keith and Carlson. Let us know what your options are. Let's get to the two Oilers trades from last week. And then we'll get on to the line changes, hot streaks, cold streaks, like I said. So the Oilers traded Cam Talbot to the Flyers for Anthony Stolarz. And then they sent Ryan Spooner to the Canucks for Sam Gagne. My initial thought with the goalie swap was that it's a pretty fantasy irrelevant, like backup swap. Like Philly gets a backup for Carter Hart, who's clearly their guy as they push for that last wildcard spot. They're only six points behind Pittsburgh at the moment. Uh, Edmonton gets Stolarz to back up their $4 million plus man, Miko Koskinen. So, you know, how much fantasy relevance is there in owning backups on these teams? But there are a couple interesting wrinkles that make this interesting for me, at least. Like Paul Kent pointed out to us on Twitter that Stolarz needs to play at least 10 more games this season or he'll become an unrestricted free agent instead of a restricted free agent. So maybe the Oilers have incentive to give Stolarz more games than they normally would just so that they don't have to lose him for nothing at the end of the season. The Oilers have 24 games left. So even if Stolarz only plays 10 out of 24, that's pretty good. That's a goal that you might want to have on your team if you think that he'll be okay. And I guess, Brian, you could speak to that. In Philly, we still have Brian Elliott, right, who's actually finally healthy. He's been loaned to Lee Valley of the AHL for conditioning stint. So something's going to have to happen with him. Now they've got Cam Talbot as their backup. So you've got to imagine that Brian Elliott either gets waived and maybe picked up on waivers by some other team, or maybe he gets traded. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. So Brian, I'll just throw this to you all at once. So you could talk about both teams or either team. Like, is, Do you have any general thoughts on this trade? And are any of like Koskinen... Hart, Stolarz, Talbot, or Brian Elliott more or less appealing to you with this move having been made? No, not really. Like, actually, I feel like all of them take a hit, except for Anthony Stolarz, who in Edmonton needs to play a certain amount of games if they want to hold on to him beyond this year, uh, which is weird because they've committed to Koskinen, except the guy who did that has now been fired. So the job could be up for grabs. Uh, in any case, I, I would be interested to see what Anthony Solars, who has some pedigree, some upside, can do with a renewed shot at a starting job or at least a tandem job in the NHL. Um, Brian Elliott's... So, uh, of course, uh, Miko Koskinen's 
value takes a commensurate hit if the Oilers do want to play Stolarz enough to keep him from becoming a free agent uh, this offseason. Uh, Carter Hart gets a little less appealing because the Flyers have Ken Talbot, who I think they'd probably have acquired to to be able to spell Carter Hart a little more often than they wanted to rely on Anthony Stolarz to do. Uh, Brian Elliott, this seems to be a signal that Philadelphia would rather Ken Talbot be their number two. So I wonder if Brian Elliott still gets carried like after being injured. Like the, the Flyers have carried three goalies a lot this season. So maybe they carry three goalies again. Give Brian Elliott a few starts. See what he can do. Maybe even just to showcase him for a potential trade. Um, and I think that sort of covers all the fantasy impact here. So fewer starts for Carter Hart. Fewer starts for Koskinen, more starts for Stallars, probably about the same number for Talbot, and who knows with Brian Elliott. Yeah, okay, so you're saying not a big impact. Don't rush to make any big changes to your rosters based on this trade. Maybe it's good for Carter Hart to play fewer games, right? Maybe then he'll be more rested and he'll play better in the games that he does play. So I would say I'm not too worried about Carter Hart losing too much value. I Like, you know, Kemp Talbot also hasn't been amazing, so I'm definitely not afraid of him stealing the job from Carter Hart. Though I guess this is 2018-19 goalies, so stranger things have happened. Brian, then we have the Spooner for Gagne trade. My thought here is that there's like nothing to it and probably nothing worth discussing. Like maybe Sam Gagne gets a shot on the top power play at some point, bumping Chason, but like whatever. Like even if he does get there, I wouldn't want to add him. He had nine minutes, 56 seconds of ice time and played on the second power play yesterday for the Oilers. This is a totally fantasy irrelevant trade and we could just move on, right? Yeah, exactly. Both guys are irrelevant unless one ends up in the top six, or maybe we see the return of Sam Gagne, power play specialist, which, yeah, would hurt Alex Chieson, but I wouldn't expect really much from either Gagne or Spooner the rest of the way. Actually, Brian, I just remembered now, remember Ryan Spooner also used to be a power play specialist over on Boston. He was playing on the top power play, so maybe if he gets a shot to play with Besser and Pedersen over on the top power play, then that could be a good spot for him. So you can watch these guys and see the deployment, but yeah, obviously nothing there. Uh, You know who did get some top power play time yesterday? Oscar Kleffbaum, he took over the job from Nurse, I think, midway through the game, and he assisted on a third-period Dreisaitl power play goal along with Connor McDavid that made the score 3-2 to two versus the Islanders. The Islanders were winning, and they, of course, pulled ahead to win 5-2 to two in the end. Nico Koskinen stopped only 19 of 23 shots, so it's hot. I don't know. Is it a hot take to say that maybe Anthony Stolarz gets more than his 10 games? Like, I feel like there's a decent chance that he could split starts with Koskinen or maybe even Koskinen doesn't play as much as Stolarz. Just he's been pretty bad lately. But anyways, okay. Patron Teddy asked uh, us to discuss on the show, safe to cut ties with Clefbum. His peripherals are kind of pathetic as well. So I'm probably going to can him. Of course, he wrote that before yesterday's game where Clefbum had seven shots, two blocks, one hit along with his power play assist. I'd hold on. Don't pull a Cam Robinson and drop him right before he's about to go hot. I think you hold on to Oscar Clefbaum if he's back on that top power play. You are never going to let Cam off the hook for what he said about Clefbaum. I feel like we've written him enough about it. I Maybe you should ask him for a fresh take on it so at least he has a chance to update his opinion. Uh, but we did sort of predict last episode, I, we did laud how well Darnell Nurse had been playing while Clefbaum was out and why take him off the top unit. Uh, but they did. And Clefbaum got on there as we thought he would at some point, and maybe he'll stay now. So still definitely worth owning in just about every format. Yeah, I mean, maybe not just, like, you know, obviously, if it's a, let us know who the defensemen are available to you. But yeah, I definitely like Oscar Clefbaum right now. I wouldn't be dropping if you've held him all this time. Let's go now to our main event, the hot streaks, the cold streaks, the line changes. I want to start in Colorado, the ice-cold Colorado Avalanche, who got shut out by the St. Louis Blues yesterday for their ninth loss in their last 10 games. And with this cold streak, we are seeing a lot of our favorites falling way behind the paces that they put up to start the season. Nathan McKinnon has only five points in his last 10 games. 
games, still taking a lot of shots, but has only seen two of his last 39 shots go in. Patron Teddy actually also asked us if he should be worried about Nathan McKinnon, so we'll get into him. But Brian, I'll just run through the list. we got Miko Rantanen, only three points in his last 10 games. He and McKinnon, they were at the top of the Art Ross race, you know, a month into the season. Right now they're quickly falling out of it. They have 76 and 75 points respectively in 58 games, which is, of course, really good, but nothing compared to Nikita Kucherov, who's way ahead at 94 points. So I think it's pretty much time to write off McKinnon and Rantanen for winning that Art Ross uh, game. Gabriel Landeskog, only four points in his last 10 games. Tyson Barry with a sad one goal and one assist in his last 10. He's actually pointless in his last five. Are you particularly worried about any or all of these guys, like the main fantasy relevant superstars on the Colorado Avalanche? Was this regression like to be expected? Should the owners like be kicking themselves or not trading when they had the chance? Is it time to like try to trade these guys before the trade deadline for to people who expect them to still keep up their overall season numbers? Or do you expect the point per game plus paces for the forwards and the 70 plus point pace for Tyson Barry to come back really soon? I feel like they can come back. I'm pretty sure that the cold snap for all these Avalanche players is mostly a result of a power play gone cold. The Avalanche have only gotten 29 power play opportunities in their last 10 games, which sounds okay, about three per game, but it's almost one less per night than they've been seeing all season to that point. So they're getting uh, fewer opportunities, say 10 fewer opportunities over the last 10 games than they've been used to. And worse, they'd only scored once on those 29 power play opportunities that they've had in their last 10 games. So that is really the big flag here. And it's not something that I could see sustaining Colorado's power play will get back on track. Are these big scorers in Colorado do some regression, maybe a touch, but not like this. Like this is not who McKinnon, Rantanen, Barry Landeskog are. So just chalk it up to some bounces, not going their way and move on. I, I would, I would say buy low Elon, but I mean, good luck on catching anyone who owns these guys actually being scared about their production. If you find that person, good job. Uh, you play in a league where you can win. Well, I don't know. Teddy asked, should he be worried about McKinnon? Obviously, people are. Was that shade a Teddy right now? I mean, just how worried. But I want to know what what would Teddy accept for McKinnon? Like, yeah. even if I'm like, yeah, you could be a little worried, but he's still going to be an 85, 90 point player. What offer could you possibly get that you'll be like, OK, yeah, I'll give up on McKinnon for that. Okay, yeah, that's right. Teddy's a very smart guy, but I do expect there are some people out there in fantasy land that are going to panic more than maybe you're expecting when a player has gone cold and they might be excited about another player who's, you know, red hot right now and they might be tempted to make that trade. Like maybe you could get like Godro for McKinnon, but that they're about evens. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Also, I just said Godro, which was annoying. I, I meant Godro, of course. I don't want to make any mispronunciations this episode. I, I'm sure I haven't so far. Uh, okay, on the other end of the spectrum, we have Nikita Kucherov, who is absolutely scorching right now 14 points in his last seven games 94 points in 59 games on the season that's 131 point pace he's currently seven points ahead of patrick kane and 11 points ahead of Connor mcdavid who have 87 83 points apiece uh so right now kucherov is running away with this art ross race patron jean marc asked us an interesting question though he said what kind of return would you look for kucherov right now in a trade like what should you try to get for him and John Mark said that he saw he has a bad schedule in the fantasy playoffs. I mean, in uh, brackets, maybe just the finals. And I'm toying with the idea of moving him for two elite players. So, Brian, this is like a good philosophical question, right? First of all, this idea of like if you have an elite player who's doing so, so well, 
do you actually try to sell high or you can't even call it selling high because he's really good but obviously he's not this good right? he's not two points per game good 131 point pace is still well below two points per game and if you get two elite players in return maybe it's worth fielding offers on the other hand how can you give up on someone like Nikita Kucherov who's right now leading the league in scoring probably the best option out there uh as far as this playoff schedule thing I took a quick look. Like some Yahoo leagues start the playoffs in three weeks on March 4th and they go for three weeks and then end like two weeks before the end of the season. So if you're in that kind of league, then you're looking at week one, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, week two, Monday, Thursday, Saturday, and then week three, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. So that's not so, so bad. Then as the weeks go on, if you're playing in a league that goes later, then we're looking at like Monday, Saturday on that second last week of the season. So that's probably the week that people are concerned about. If that's your fantasy hockey finals, and you're only getting two games Monday, Saturday from Kucherov. That's not great. The last week of the season, by the way, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And actually Yahoo, I saw had an option this year. I think it was really smart because Brian, we've been for a long time. I'm going to digress from Kucherov for a bit. Cause really, what are you going to say about Kucherov? Anyways, you're going to say he's great and see what you can get. I already know your answer, but like, <laughs> I kind of like this thing because, you know, for so long, Brian, we've been talking about how fantasy leagues that go into the last week of the season, we call them clown leagues. And we say, like, that's so dumb to, like, count that last week and make that your fantasy finals because a lot of, of the good players are getting sat and rested for the playoffs. So it's not a fair representation of the teams. But, like, we've had feedback from that people like saying no you guys have it wrong because you're missing out on real nhl action some really exciting games where teams are fighting for the playoffs and how frustrating like just as frustrating as it is to lose out on a game from your superstar who's sitting because they're resting it must be equally as frustrating to have a superstar player who has a big game but you've already lost because that game didn't count for you and the league ended early so i really like what yahoo did because they're combining the final two weeks and making that the finals of the fantasy playoffs so maybe you lose a game but you also you know have a bigger sample size so hopefully it all works out I kind of like it. So I think I'm going to say now going to the final week of the fantasy season is no longer something I'm going to call a clown league thing as long as it's the final two weeks that count as your fantasy hockey finals like Yahoo is doing. So what do you think about that? And then also, what do you think about Jean-Marc's question about Nikita Kucherov? So I still don't think it's a perfect system. Yahoo has been doing this for as long as I can remember, counting the last, it's not quite the last two weeks. I feel like it generally works out to be like the last 10 to 12 days. And funny stuff still still does happen over that time. So I still would rather you just cut out the last three games of the year or you know, maybe you don't and you reward people who are looking ahead and saying, okay, which of my stars might potentially rest? And, you know, people at the trade deadline are loading up on players who are on bubble teams uh, who they know are going to be uh, be nearly guaranteed to play right up until the end of the season. Um, And then going back up to Nikita Kucherov, uh, the things he can do, like talking about the playoff schedule and Tampa only plays three games most weeks, The things that Nikita Kucherov can do in three games is what most NHLers need four, five, six, 45, 82 games to do. So even compared to like some of the higher end offensive producers, I will take Kucherov any night of the week. And yeah, I'd rather he play four games, but I'm not spooked by the prospect of him playing only three to the point that I'm going to potentially lose a trade to try to get that extra game played. So I like I looked at Kucherov's numbers to see if I thought maybe something was unsustainable, but zero red flags for Nikita Kucherov's production this year. If I squint, I might say that Kucherov's power play success could stand to regress a bit. He's scoring on 22% of his power play shots, and his team as a whole is converting on 20% of their shots taken with the man advantage. And maybe that's one reason why Kucherov is up to 37 power play points already this year in 59 games. And in doing so, has already eclipsed last year's 36 power play points, which it took him 80 games to amass. Wowza. But even that uh, 
perhaps extra few points on the power play is not enough to scare me off of Kucherov. If you own him, pat yourself on the pack and hold on tight. I would much rather try other routes to get extra games played than dangling him in any deal that I am not 100% going to win. I don't know. Well, so John Mark asked us a question. If he wants to trade Kucherov, what can he get for him? I'm going to try to, uh, right, you didn't want to. I'm going to try to help out our friend, John Mark. I'm going to say, I want McKinnon. And you could probably get him at a bit of a discount, as we just discussed. I want McKinnon and I want Marshan. How about that? Or like equivalent of those two. If you could get that kind of return for Nikita Kucherov, then then I'm listening. It starts with McKinnon, 100%. Like that's the first name that comes to my mind too, if you're trading Kucherov, especially with this little dry run. And then it depends on who else the guy with McKinnon has. But you need to get two guys who are at least point per game players to make this worthwhile. Right. Or like a really good defense. Like if you get McKinnon and like Eric Carlson or Brent Burns, you know, maybe even like a Victor Hedman or John Carlson. I'm I'm listening. OK, but OK. But yeah, you got to get two elite players back, like you said. And those are the types of guys I'd be looking for. Uh, Brian, since we're talking about Tampa Bay, I've been surprisingly seeing a lot of Tampa Bay players available in free agency throughout my leagues. Maybe we could just discuss them really quickly and see if any of these guys should be added. Yanni Gourd currently on the top line with Kucherov in point. He was really, you know, he was hot at the start of the year. You correctly called that it wouldn't last. And he went cold for a while. Hey, scored yesterday versus the Habs. Four points in his last five games. In a great spot in the lineup, just like he was when he was hot at the beginning of the year. So he's someone I definitely have my eye on. Tyler Johnson, currently playing on the second line with Stamkos and Palat. Uh, he was also cold for a really long stretch, but he's scored in two straight games now for whatever that's worth. Andre Palat, second line, also, like I just said, a top power play. Finally picking up points after going cold for a bit. He has now five assists in his last three games. He was pointless in five games before that. Uh, JT Miller, for completion's sake. Uh, he's in the bottom six. He had a nice three-game run seeing top power play time, but now he's pointless in two, and he's been bumped from the top power play by Andre Palat. So uh, how would you rank these four guys? Gord, Johnson, Palat, JT Miller, going into next week. Tampa plays Monday, Tuesday, Thursday next week, so only three games. So they're all early odds. If you want to grab one of these guys, get three games potentially, and then you could drop for two more games from someone else on the weekend. Might not be a bad strategy. So Yanni Gord, I'll start with him as three points in four games while playing with Nikita Kucherov. Gord had 12 points in about 30 games of playing with Steven Stamkos. So if you'd streamed Gord in during the Stamkos days and were put off by all the goose eggs in that time, now that Gord is playing with Kucherov, that's reason enough to go out and give him another shot. So I am calling Yanni Gord, and it's not really a stretch here, but he's a must-own for as long as he's with Kucherov in point. After him, uh, I'll go Palat for being on the top power play, then Tyler Johnson, then JT Miller, who is sadly just not earning the deployment that made him a must-own Lightning player when he first arrived in Tampa. Kind of a sad situation there. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not too sad about it. I'm sure his life is fine. But yeah, so Yanni Gord's the one that Brian says to go out and get. So uh, listen to him. Go grab him. Uh, some interesting line changes in Vegas, which seemed to work yesterday. They beat uh, the Nashville Predators 5-1. UC Saros was in it. I don't know if that means something. But hey, great game for Vegas. And they had been a little cold lately. They shook things up. Maybe now it'll stick for a bit. So Brandon Peary got back into the top six. He bumped Max Pacioretty from the second line. So it was Peary playing with Stasny and Alex Tuck. That Patches stasny tuck trio had been so good for so long, but they had cooled off lately. So it makes sense that they made that change. Nothing from Peary at even strength yesterday, though he was on the ice for a Shea Theodore goal, assisted by Tuck and Stasny. So maybe he could have gotten a point. And he also did score a power play goal from his power play unit with Riley Smith, Carlson, Marcia So, and Shea Theodore. So that gives Peary two goals in his last three games after a six-game pointless streak. Uh, Pacioretty got bumped to the third line, but he scored a couple goals from his third line spot, playing with Cody Eakin and Oscar Lindbergh. He only had one point in five games before that. So kind of funny that the thing that sparked Max Pacioretty was getting demoted in the lineup. Then you got Alex Tuck 
He picked up two assists and took six shots to end an eight-game pointless streak. Brian, so do you see this game as a sign of things to come? Like, now can we expect that these Vegas players who were slumping maybe are going to get hot again? Is it time to get back on the Peary or Tuck trains if they were dropped in your leagues during their cold stretches? Are you worried about Max Pacioretty? What's your general take here? So my general take here is I'm not so excited about Brandon Peary. I'm getting re-excited about Alex Tuck, and I'm not so concerned about Max Pacioretty. Starting with Brandon Peary, he had 40 shots in his first 11 games. Now, Peary has just 14 shots in his last nine games, and that only includes five shots in Peary's last five games. So I'm happy to see Peary get his deployment bump, but if he's not shooting the way he was in his first offensive punch, I'm not expecting him to score that way either. Two goals on five shots isn't something Peary's going to repeat often. So come on, Brandon, shoot the puck, and then I'll let myself get a little more excited about you again. Uh, in the meantime, he still makes a good stream. Just want to see him getting at least a couple shots per game on a regular basis instead of picking up just a single shot over three games as he did a couple weeks ago. Alex Tuck has actually seen a similar story. He averaged two and a half shots per game over his first 45 games. Then two weeks ago, he suddenly stopped shooting just 10 shots over six games, including some rare zero and one shot efforts before finally throwing six shots on net in Saturday's game. I have more faith in him bouncing back to offensive relevance than Brandon Peary. Yeah, I, I've been stubbornly telling people to hold on to Alex Tuck. He got those two assists yesterday. I don't know if that was enough to convince people, but we'll see. I really like him. I think he's a really good player. We sort of called him at the start of the year. We thought this guy could be something this year, and we were looking really great. And obviously, Daniel Negreanu was a big Alex Tuck guy. He said that he'd be good. I'm not ready to let go of him. He's still playing with Paul Stasny, who I also like. So yeah, I'd say I agree with you 100%. Max Pacioretty, you're not too worried, even though he's on the third line now? Who knows how long that lasts, right? Yeah. These these lines don't look like it's weird. Like, yeah, I look at the Vegas lines and they just look off. So I feel like we're not this isn't how they're going to stay for long, especially if guys like Peary and Tuck aren't quite uh, firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I think that's a really smart take, Brian. Like, obviously, they were not scoring that many goals. They decided to shake things up. But I think once they get the train right, they're going to get Max Pacioretty back where he belongs. Uh, the other notable change that I've seen recently is Shea Theodore swapped with Colin Miller on their respective power play units. So now Theodore's on the one with four forwards. Uh, so the, I already mentioned them, like Marcia So, Riley Smith, whatever, those guys. And then there was that power play unit of Theodore and Nate Schmidt, along with the former second line of Stasny, Tuck, and Pacioretty. So now it is Colin Miller there playing with Stasny, Tuck, Pacioretty, and Nate Schmidt. Uh, so what does that all mean? I don't even know, because both power plays pretty much play evenly. Colin Miller, though, was pointless yesterday. He's on a bit of a slump himself. He only has two assists in his last nine games. Nate Schmidt actually keeps plugging along at around a half point per game. Shea Theodore scored a goal yesterday, like I mentioned, and he's now gotten points in two straight games after being pointless in five in a row. Well, at this point, like, what do we do with these uh, Vegas defensemen? Are all of them pretty much even in fantasy value? Is it like, should I ask you to rank them? Or is it just like, grab one and hope for the best? They're all about the same. Have Shea Theodore and Colin Miller ever both been fantasy relevant at the same time? Like, mm -hmm. am I right to think this has never happened? I, I mean, I guess it depends what you mean by fantasy relevant. Like, there were stretches last year where, like, everyone on Vegas was fantasy relevant, but I definitely get what you're saying. Yeah, so it feels like only one of them can be truly uh, helpful at a given moment, in which case right now the guy's Theodore, and then Nate Schmidt is the guy who's just, like, floating around as, like, uh, he'll be steady. He'll be okay. He'll get you a little bit here and there. Um, he usually doesn't go quite as low as Theodore or Miller can when they go quiet. 
but I don't know if that makes him more worthwhile because his upside just does not match theirs. Okay, so you're saying you're not going to rank them right now. You're saying Theodore. You're saying Theodore right now is the one you like the best because he's hotter right now. I mean, he's had points in two straight games. Let's not let's not go crazy. Yeah, but, he's not so hot. Don't don't jump too hard for for Shea Theodore. Colin Miller seems like the steadier option long term, just based on how much more up and down Theodore has been. And Schmidt again, the the limited upside, but steady as she goes kind of choice. Yeah, I'm ranking them Nate Schmidt first, and then the other two could jockey wow. for a position. Wow. All reliable, right? That's a guy, if it's my bottom defenseman, it's going to get me a point every couple games, going to get me some peripherals. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, the tide seems to have turned in nets in Calgary. Let's do some more goalie talk now. David Riddick had three bad games in a row, which led to Mike Smith getting the start on Thursday, and he played well in a 3-2 shootout loss to Florida. He stopped 30 of 32, and then Mike Smith got the start again yesterday versus Pittsburgh, and he hung on. It was a wild game. Calgary ended up winning 5-4, to four, and Mike Smith stopped 34 of 38 shots. And also, if you watch that game, Pittsburgh came on super strong in the third, and two of their two third-period goals were both Evgeny Malkin power play goals that were really hard for Mike Smith to stop. So I feel like he even played better than you know his overall numbers look if you like only look at even strength percentages, which I know, Brian, you love to do. So now what, right? Like, does Mike Smith have the net back for the time being? He's gotten two straight starts that they could have started Riddick and they decided to go with Mike Smith. If he's available in free agency, should people be rushing to add him? Like, Calgary is a good team. They're going to win games. If you want a goalie that's going to get you wins, you want a goalie playing for the Calgary Flames. And then also, how much should David Riddick owners be panicking now that he seems to be taking a backseat to Mike Smith? Well, isn't it so annoying that on the team, like you just said, Elon, that is tied for fourth in the NHL in wins... There's not a dependable goalie you can play to get in on those wins. Like I, I drafted Mike Smith to start of the season. I have David Riddick on my roster now, and I feel like I haven't gotten the best of either one while they've been on my squads this year. I actually wanted to mention last week that we were beginning to see the door open for Mike Smith to take another shot that I figured could be the last chance he has to show he can run with the number one job or at least be a meaningful part of a goalie tandem. Uh, Riddick, to this point, has been the better goalie and feels like he's made more big saves at big times or at least has allowed fewer brutally deflating goals compared to Mike Smith. But the job that was Riddick's to lose is uh, is on the verge of being lost, probably just a few good Mike Smith starts away from being lost. But the good news for anxiety-riddled Riddick owners is that Mike Smith uh, still kind of sucks. And a few good Mike Smith starts uh, is not the most likely thing in the world. Uh, so if you do own Riddick, you might want to try and cuff with Smith until this latest goalie challenge round plays itself out. You may be wasting a roster spot for a week and adding Mike Smith, but it is a good safeguard. Also, I don't even know how good David Riddick really is. Like I've been warning that he's not proven to be a, a sustainably consistently high-performing goalie for the last couple of years. So I don't know that Riddick is ever going to have a death grip on this number one spot in Calgary. So that's another reason to just think that maybe you need to cuff, which again, sucks, but that's where we're at right now. The Calgary goalie situation is going to be really interesting to watch, uh, I guess, after this season, or maybe they do something at the deadline, like they should. I know their cap space is screwed up, but if they could get like a Jimmy Howard, even Craig Anderson, or what about a second go around with Brian Elliott? They really just need a guy who can play average beyond just short spurts. Uh, that would really make a big difference for their team because right now I imagine they can be so tired of getting sunk by their goalies.
Oh man, you love Brian Elliott. No, they're not. They're not going to bring in <laughs> Brian Elliott again, so they could again get disappointed by him in the playoffs. But yeah. Jack, it's an interesting situation right now. It like this seems like the ball's in Mike Smith's court, and like I said, he's had two good games in a row. Calgary has an interesting schedule next week. They go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. So no back to backs, but it is four games. So it'll be really interesting to see who plays what days. They got Arizona on Monday. They've got Anaheim on Friday. Those are two great games to get a goalie that's probably not going to let in too many goals. Then you got the Islanders on Wednesday, Ottawa on. Sunday so yeah uh, like you said Brian if I had David Riddick I would maybe be considering dropping him for Mike Smith or at least getting the cuff I like you know going into the season their plan was for Mike Smith to be their goalie so maybe this is all going according to plan also it's worth pointing out that Matthew Kachuk had an assist yesterday and that broke a seven game pointless streak and this is something that I hadn't even realized was happening but he's been like well above a point per game all season long but with this stretch he's now right even he's got 58 points in 58 games Brian what should we expect from Matthew Kachuk for the rest of the season has this assist yesterday ended the cold streak and he'll get back to doing what he was doing before is he a good buy low candidate before the trade deadline or was this drop off that he's been seeing was it to be expected when we gawked at Matthew Kachuk's point per game pace back in November we saw two red flags the first was, and that was also like we were gawking because all of a sudden Matthew Kachuk 60 point guy was playing above a point per game pace wow amazing can he keep it up uh we saw that his five on five IPP was way up back then that has since regressed to about where we'd expect it the second red flag was that Kachuk's shot rates were down from the year before which actually continues to be the case and his expected goals per 60 minutes rates also uh, have fallen from last year neither of these drops are crazy but they're odd to see when a player is in the midst of a career year however it's washed out by the fact that he's got 21 power play points that's already four more than Kachuk had last year and he's done it in 10 fewer games Kachuk's consistent appearance on that top unit and its success is a big reason why Kachuk is still on track to shatter last year's 59-point pace. So back in November, I when we were like, oh, can he keep this up? I called Kuchuk a surefire 70-point guy when he was on a 91-point pace, which I know, classic Brian, but I wasn't wrong, was I? Like, I'll move him up to 75 points now, but still see some minor threat of shooting percentage regression to come. So go ahead and buy low if you can, but also don't expect Kuchuk to be a slam-dunk point-per-game pace guy either. Yeah, I think I'm with you. Maybe 70-point pace going forward. At the end of the day, when you're not playing on that Calgary top line, you're not getting the same offensive opportunities as if you're like, I'd rather Elias Lindholm than Matthew Kachuk for the rest of the season. Is that crazy? No, that's not crazy. I would also prefer Elias Lindholm, who has outperformed Johnny Gaudreau over the last week. Lindholm, so good. Uh, let's go to the Rangers right now. Still goalie situations. It seems like a similar thing is actually happening in New York as in Calgary. Alexander Georgiev has been amazing lately. We were talking about his, his 55 save win over the Leafs last Sunday while we recorded. And he followed that up with a 31 save 6-2 win over the Sabres on Friday. Meanwhile, Henrik Lundqvist has been struggling a bit lately. He only has one 900 save percentage plus game in his last five. So lately he's been pretty bad. It looks like Georgiev is getting the start again today versus the Penguins. So we'll see how he does that game. Actually, Brian is starting right now. It's 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. What a great time to uh, watch a hockey game. So, Brian, is it time for people to grab Alexander Georgiev if he's available? Do you think that he can steal starts from Henrik Lundqvist on a regular basis moving forward? Maybe. Sure. Like, I'll go with sure, because why not at this point? It's probably in the Rangers' best interest to lose, and I still think Lundqvist is a better option on most nights than Georgiev, but there's no arguing that Georgiev has rightfully chipped away at Lundqvist starts a a couple times this year, especially now, um, though the Rangers have inevitably kept going back to Lundqvist for stretches because Georgiev never quite gone on as much of a roll 
as he's currently on. When trying to figure out how this plays out the rest of the season, I'm actually just trying to figure out the Rangers' end game here. You have Georgiev, who has another year left on his ELC after this season. Uh, Lungvis has two more years after this season at $8.5 million. So at what point and how do the Rangers actually transition from Lungvis to Georgiev? Like, why even bother giving Georgiev starts if you're going to want to play Lungfist next year because he's making eight and a half million dollars or do you want to give Georgiev enough time like when do you give him that time to see if he's worth re-signing once his entry-level contract expires for what it's worth if you're asking me to pick one of the two to be my starter next year even devoid of this context Lungfist still takes it he's playing very close to average expectation while Georgiev has been too shaky granted uh, he's young just starting out his career, so maybe he just needs some time to work his way into the NHL and not put up such awful numbers. But to take this back to fantasy implications, Lungvis owners probably need to shore up their goalie situation right now, and goalie seekers can count your give amongst the multitude of random goalie options to give your team a boost. Just keep in mind that any goalie playing for the Rangers, not your best choice at the moment. Yeah, that's fair. And Brian, we're going to get yelled at unless I mention the name Igor Shostyorkin, who like if you're talking about the Rangers future in net, you can't be talking about is it going to be Georgiev or Lundqvist? Like Shostyorkin is going to be apparently done his KHL contract this summer and the Rangers might get him in and he's the guy who everyone is expecting to be the next like big name goalie for the New York Rangers. So I, I feel like we could just limit this conversation to this season. And this happened last year, by the way, of Henrik Lundqvist losing starts to Georgiev at the end. So yeah, if you're relying for Henrik Lungfist for starts moving forward. I don't I, I could see it being 50-50. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And especially, you know, like Lungfist is more likely to maybe have some nagging injury that he decides to rest. So yeah, I definitely am more into Georgiev than I maybe even am into David Riddick right now. I don't know if that's a crazy thing Ooh. to say. The whole thing I is think very that's tricky. a little crazy. I don't know. Well, I just feel like Mike Smith is probably gonna play more games than Riddick, and I could see Georgiev. I don't know. I guess it's it's uh maybe that is crazy, but the whole goalies, the goalies in general, doesn't even matter what we say. Like, no one knows. Like, we get tweets every once in a while, like, which of these, like, six goalies should I add? And I give my best opinion, but I'm very often confident that my answer is going to be wrong. Just because what are the chances I'm going to pick the one out of six who's the best when goalies are so hard to predict? And speaking of goalies that are hard to predict, you and I still have not gotten on the same page for Darcy Kemper. You were starting to look a bit right. He had a bit of a rough week, but then yesterday he shut out the Toronto Maple Leafs. So who knows, Brian? Don't worry. I'm not going to bug you about Darcy Kemper again. Instead, I want to bring up a couple of cold streaks on the Arizona Coyotes. Clayton Keller and Oliver ekman Larson both pointless yesterday and have both been super cold lately. Clayton Keller has just one assist in his last six games. OEL pointless over that six-game stretch. Keller now down to a 54-point pace on the season. Oliver ekman Larson is down at a 39-point pace on the season. Are these current paces reasonable expectations moving forward like is keller going to end with 54 and oel end with 39 because if yes i feel like it's almost time to call these guys snoozers in average size leagues like, these are not numbers that make you think this guy is a must own at this point like alex galchenyuk he's got four goals his last four games to me it seems like he's the best player to own on the coyotes right now clayton keller having an awful season he is shooting just three percent on the power play, but he's also significantly less involved in taking shots on the power play too, compared to last year. Uh, Even in spite of those things, uh, Keller still managed 16 power play points, 15 assists, just a single goal, which he probably deserves more than. So I think there's room for Keller to improve on this 54 point pace Um, at even strength. 
Keller could also probably have a few more points, but Arizona's offense is not working very well this season. They rank 30th in the league in team shooting percentage at five on five, and that's hurting Oliver Ekman Larson as well. OEL has himself to blame, or at least his coach for sure. Like he's not shooting as much on the power play. Uh, Elon, I've just mentioned that Keller and Ekman Larson are both shooting less on the Arizona power play this year. Do you want to guess who's stepped into that void to start shooting more? Uh, I guess like the easy answer would be Galchenyuk, but that would be too obvious. Wait, is it him or is it yeah, Connor? It's him. Okay, I, I was like Connor Garland or something. <laughs> well, it's it's him and Connor Garland, and it's also a bit of a trick question because that Arizona power play is just generally shooting less. So <laughs> it's not like anybody else is really benefiting at the loss of Keller and OEL. It seems like some system change has happened or something is happening on the ice that's making that power play unit less successful. Uh, back to Ekman Larson. He's also uh, got a pretty weak five on five shooting percentage, only converting on half as many shots at five on five as he usually does. But because he's not taking a whole bunch of shots, we can't get so excited and say, oh, well, regression's going to help him because uh, he's not the OEL who's taken a thousand shots the way he used to. Um, generally, Arizona, pretty much an offensive wasteland. Keller, like you said, just leading the team with that 54-point pace. Next best is Galchenyuk, who's pacing for for 53 points. And then, like, there's pretty much nobody of note. You've got Ekman Larson, like you said, down below a 40-point pace. That's what happens on a bottom five-scoring team in the league. None of these guys can collect their points, and it is getting kind of frustrating. Ekman Larson has a little more upside than he's showing, so you could hold him. Same thing with Keller. Generally, someone still pacing for 55 points is worth hanging on to, especially if there's still a little hope that he could pick up a few more power play goals. Um, But otherwise, yeah, all Coyotes kind of stink. And really, if it weren't for Darcy Kemper, they'd be a lot worse off in the standings (laughs) than they are now. So there's your requisite Darcy Kemper praise. Wow, Brian, I'm surprised you said that. That's exciting. Uh, Yeah, Oliver ekman Larson. I don't know. I was wondering if you were going to say that people should try to buy low right now before the trade deadline, but doesn't sound like you're especially optimistic that he'll do very much better. Keep that in mind. And this other defenseman on Arizona doing better right now. I'm getting totally deja vu from last year. Jordan Jordan Osterley is inexplicably on a fantastic run. He has two goals and five assists in his last seven games. Brian, remember last year on Chicago? I think I feel like it was around this time he took over on the top power play, and all of a sudden he was getting points. He's doing it now for Arizona. Should we recommend that people jump on Osterley if they're on the hunt for D and free A? Just see, like, I'm not going to ask you like Osterley versus Oliver Ekman Larson, but just in general, is he a guy on your radar or is this for sure something that's not going to last? I mean, you've asked this about Alex Goligoski and Jacob Shikrin. So we've seen these little runs happen from Coyotes defensemen and they haven't lasted, but it's nice while they do. So you can try and get in on that. The thing with Osterley is that in the past, when he's gone on these little runs, we've been able to laud his peripherals and say like, there's a lot of other things he can do, even if he's not scoring. But those peripherals, aren't there anymore. He has just seven shots in his last 11 games. Osterley still puts up a couple blocks on average, a hit here and there, but really uh, not a whole lot to love. You can probably find a better category filler. And Osterley's probably only putting up these points because he leads Arizona in five-on-five shooting percentage. He's up above 9% when most teammates are wallowing around 7%. And I don't think that's necessarily to Osterley's credit, uh, which means I don't think this run is sustainable either. I know you just made a face because I switched from Osterley to Osterley, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Osterley, I, I, we've been corrected by this so much. I was going to, like, why Why can't you just... <laughs> oh, I'm God. hedging. It's Osterley. Yeah, no, I, I realize that. And I just I just didn't want to break my flow, even though here we are from saying Osterley. Okay. Uh, 
Okay. If I say it wrong the first time, I'm allowed to fix it the second no, time. No, I liked it. It was, okay. it was funny to me. Uh, anyway, you can stream Osterly for as long as the run lasts, which probably won't be too much longer. Okay. Yeah, maybe look at Goligoski, look at Shikarin. All, all these guys could get you a point on a given day, maybe some peripherals. Right now, Osterly is the hottest one. Another defenseman I'm actually interested in right now is Travis Sanheim over on Philly. He's on a decent roll. He's got six points in his last eight games. Philly's playing again today, so we'll see how he does. He's also been playing on the top pairing with Ivan Provorov and playing over 20 minutes per game. And yes, I'm talking about a guy named Travis Sanheim. He's also been seeing consistent power play two-time for whatever that's worth as a second D-man with Provorov on that unit. So Brian, what do you think about Travis Sanheim? who is this guy i searched for him on twitter and people are talking about him as if like he's going to be the future top power play quarterback like he's going to be the guy who's going to bump ghost bear next so that's kind of interesting he must have some sort of pedigree or maybe these people on twitter that i'm seeing tweets from just don't know what they're talking about is he on your radar for someone during the final stretch of the season like he's getting some decent peripherals getting good ice time on a little bit of a run right now seems like philly considers him to be an important piece for this playoff push uh, yeah, he seems like he's being used as an important piece. He was a first round pick back in 2014, drafted 17th overall. And this will be like he's already broken a career high for games played uh, with 58. Last season, he played 49 in Philadelphia, putting up just 10 points. He's got 21 points now in 58 games. And uh, I mean, we've watched him rise over the course of the year. He started off the year playing like 14, 17 minutes as a bottom pairing guy. But and that continued for half the year. But for 25 games now, Sanheim has been seeing 20 to 25 minutes most nights. And that's top pairing deployment right there. He's essentially the new Robert Hag in Philadelphia. Big minutes, plenty of blocks, throwing pucks on net, getting some collateral points by being in on them. Like, I don't think he's a big offensive generator, but he's in the right place enough that he's going to be there at the right time. Uh, And Sandheim's a good category filler, even when he doesn't point. So that's a reason to be interested in Travis Sandheim. I'd prefer him to someone like Jordan Osterley. Yeah, me too. And also, if you're in a league where Ivan Provorov is owned and no one's letting him go, I don't see much difference for this season, at least between Sanheim and Provorov. So hmm. keep that. I mean, they're both playing on the same power play. They're playing on the same pairing. Right now, Sanheim's getting more points than Provorov. Like, what's the difference? Yeah, it's a it's a very legitimate point. I mean, the difference is Provorov has the upside, but we're sort of not expecting that to happen imminently for Provorov to suddenly start putting up points the way we've hoped he would over the last couple seasons. You're saying like Provorov has the upside. Like, did you look into Sanheim at all? Because I get these tweets I read seem to be indicating that people are more into him than Provorov, at least as a potential top power play guy. I'm looking at Dauber prospects right now. Fantasy upside is 8.5. That sounds good. I mean, it's so this year he had a pretty successful season uh, in the AHL. He had 16 point, well, very successful, almost a point per game player as a defenseman, one goal, 15 assists. We just haven't seen it at the NHL level, right? In his rookie pro year, he was just under a half point per game guy. So yeah, these are decent numbers. I mean, I haven't really seen him touted on his way up as having his terribly offensive pedigree, but why not? Sure. Like I'm, I'm keeping an open mind here. Yeah, I feel like maybe uh, this guy does have a good offensive pedigree, and you might you might have just missed it. Like everything I'm reading now, just in my quick research, okay. that I thought you were going to do is saying that this guy's supposed to have great offensive pedigree. Okay, so then I missed it. Good catch, yeah. or or it's not so much I missed it. I'm just not sure if this is the year we're going to see it. Like Provorov's already been in the league for a couple of years. I feel like he's got he's still got a better chance at pointing night in night out. Maybe Sanheim will have a better chance at some point in the near future, but I don't think the immediate future. Fair. 
I guess. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but not fair. I'm going to bring him up in another couple of weeks. I have a feeling he's going to keep doing pretty well. Okay, and one more defenseman, one random name. How about Devin Taves? Uh, do you think he's some of the people should be looking at right now? He had two assists yesterday, including a power play assist from the New York Islanders' second power play unit, the one he plays on with Ryan Pulak. So that gives Devin Taves four points in his last four games. Last week, we talked about how Pulak's doing well. Uh, how does Devin Taves rank with the Osterleys and Sandheims as potential deep defenseman ads that you could make, guys that are currently getting some points? Pretty deep. He, he's definitely in the Osterly territory, uh, comfortably behind Sandheim. Okay, and uh, also since we're on the Islanders, Anders Lee, is it time for people to give up on him? Like, he scored yesterday, but it was his only shot of the game that he scored on, and this was actually only his second point in his last 12 games, and in his last eight games, seven of them, he's taken only one shot, so that's not good. He had one four-shot game in there, then all the rest are one shot, so I don't even really care that much that Anders Lee scored a goal yesterday. If he's going to be a one-shot-per-game guy, plus be on this cold streak, I feel like it might be time to maybe move on from Anders Lee. Like, he was so good at the start of the year, everyone was saying, oh, I guess he didn't need John Tavares after all. I think he does. I think he, I think playing with John Tavares actually made a pretty big difference for Anders Lee, and I think he is definitely feeling the effects of Tavares not being there. Way back in the Keeping Carlson audio almanac that we released at the start of the year with all our projections, we wondered in that almanac if Anders Lee was a high-end shooter. He'd been coming off two years of really efficient shooting, but that was kind of a new trick because it had been preceded by two and a half years of not as efficient shooting. So he wanted to know uh, if he had learned something new or gotten better or if it was just a weird quirk and which was the real Anders Lee uh, and this year has been a return to the not as efficient shooter that he started his career as and that doesn't help when his shot rates are also at the lowest point of his career we were hoping that Anders Lee with good shooting uh, efficiency could be a 60 point player but with another year of data he's looking once again like a 55 point guy should be valued accordingly and yes you also can't understate the impact of losing John Tavares. Okay, another defenseman that I wanted to bring up, Tyler Myers is on a little bit of a run right now on the Jets. He's got four points in his last four games, scored two goals versus Ottawa yesterday. Looks like Dustin Bufflin missed yesterday's game with a lower body injury, so... That's not good. We'll have to see if he comes back soon. It looks like on Roto World, it's saying he may be ready to return on Wednesday against Colorado. So maybe this is a short-term thing. Either way, Tyler Tyler Myers is a guy who we've seen have some offensive upside in the past. He's on a little bit of a run right now. What do you think about Tyler Myers, you know, when we're comparing all these potential deep defensemen ads? Is he on your radar? I know you haven't prepared him. This is a guy I just thought of bringing up just recently. So maybe this could even be more of a PSA. Like, FYI, everybody, Tyler Myers is on a bit of a run. Yeah, that's the right context to be bringing him up in like just a, hey, uh, and also consider Josh Morrissey. You just want to see if Bufflin is out again, who is taking that power play time. Tyler Myers has actually done pretty well in the shots department lately. He had uh, two games where he had 12 shots on goal. Uh, That was on the 7th and the 9th of February. Then he went quiet again, but then he had four shots again uh, on Saturday night uh, against Ottawa. Of course, actually two of those games Two of those three high shooting games that I mentioned were against Ottawa. Another player, like someone's going to say, well, what about Sammy Niku? Um, He's just played 13 and a half minutes of ice time. So uh, we didn't see a whole lot from him. One shot, minus one, nothing else to speak of. So uh, yeah, keep an eye. If Bufflin stays out, you want to be quick on the trigger to add whoever is getting the top power play time in Winnipeg. Yeah, and even if not, because I think it's Jacob Truba who's going to get it. Uh, he's the one who got it last time. But even if not, there's like Winnipeg scores a lot of goals. There's some points to go around. And I think uh, Tyler Myers is someone you should have on your radar, regardless of if he's on the top power play. He can play on the second power play. Uh, there's also Ryan. Wait, go ahead. 
yeah, he's he's often worth a stream, right? So that doesn't change with this. Yeah, like I'm in a league where like Tyler Myers is maybe one of the top defenseman free agents available right now. So I'm trying to figure out who are some of the best deep guys. And he's in the obviously it depends on your league and who's available. Uh, Ryan Murray is another defenseman who's looking OK lately at three assists versus Chicago yesterday. And actually saying he looks OK lately is maybe kind of not giving him enough credit overall now on the season. Ryan Murray has 29 points in 55 games. That's a 43 point pace. That's fantasy relevant in most formats. Obviously, it helped that he just had these three assists yesterday, but he's a defenseman on Columbus. For those of you that don't know, he's playing on the top pairing with Seth Jones. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So he's another name I'm going to throw out there. And uh, we could even just move on unless you want to talk about Ryan Murray. Oh, I will mention one impressive thing about Ryan Murray is that he has 29 points this season. Only one of them on the power play. 23 of those points have come at five on five, which puts him ranking eighth in the NHL amongst defensemen in five on five points. So way to go, Ryan Murray. One reason he's got that is because his IPP is a little higher than it has been in the past. He's also seeing a very friendly on ice shooting percentage up above 11% for context. Last year, it was a very low 6%. A couple years before, we're more average 8% years. Um, so that's why Ryan Murray is getting a few extra points at five on five. But good for him for taking advantage of those opportunities that he's coming across. Yeah, so again, there's some defensemen for you in deep leagues. Let's end the show in Carolina. I wanted to just once again talk about how great this team is doing. And they've got a new top line that's stuck for a while now. So I think we need to get ourselves acclimated to a world where the top line in Carolina is Sebastian Ajo, Nino Niederreiter, and Justin Williams. And they've been doing great right now. And they've been holding for a while. All three are like crushing it lately. Ajo's on a four-game point streak. He's up to 67 points in 59 games on the season. That's a 93-point pace. This guy's only 21 years old. Like, lock him in as a point-per-game guy at least every year moving forward, right? Like, Sebastian Ajo is a true superstar. Like, this is not any luck. Like, he's amazing. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Nino Niederreiter also on a four-game point streak with his two goals versus Edmonton on Friday and his assist yesterday versus Dallas as part of it. Uh, 13 points in 13 games since joining the Hurricanes. He's on the top line with Ajo. He's on the top power play. Must own in all leagues at this point. Like Nino Niederreiter making the Minnesota Wild who are struggling to, to, you know, get wins. They must be missing him or maybe they're fine with it. But either way, Nino Niederreiter just like got to be owned. Don't even think about it. Figure out a way to get him in, on your lineup. And maybe does the same have to be said for Justin Williams, also on the top line, also on the top power play, also on a four game point streak, up to 10 points in his last nine games. Seems to me like he should be just as much a lineup lock as Nino Niederreiter right now, right? Yeah, totally. He's been able to sustain this. Good for him. I mean, if you're playing with Sebastian Ajo, it seems like you want to have this guy. And this is not the kind of thing that's just going on and off. It seems like Justin Williams and Nino Niederreiter might be there to say Carolina's on a nice streak right now. Miraza got a shutout last game. Like McElhenney had a great game the game before. Like everything's going right for the Carolina Hurricanes. And then we had patron Alexander ask us to compare Nino Niederreiter and Tevo Teravainen. And Teravainen has definitely been making lemonade out of his demotion to line two. He still has 14 points in his last 12 games. He's on a 72-point pace on the season. He's well on track to beat his high mark of 64 points that he got last year. Obviously, still helps that Teravainen is still on the top power play, though. Gotta give him kudos for all the production playing with Furland and Lucas Walmark on the second line. Uh, so... Yeah, Alexander wanted us to answer who we would prefer right now between Tara Vinen and Nino Niederreiter. It's a tough question. I feel like they're both good. 
It is a tough question. I Like you said, they both have reasons to own them. You have Nita Ryder playing with Aho, which, like you just said about Justin Williams, is a reason to own anybody. It's It's been reason to own Brock McGinn at other points of this season. And then you have Tara Vinen, who's still getting uh, to play with Aho on a very good Carolina top power play unit. Um, at even strength, he still gets to play with Michael Furland, which is okay, and Lucas Walmark, which is also eh, kind of okay. So I think... I don't know. This is almost like the Debreskin Heinen question we started off with at the start of the show, where it's like you've got one guy on the top power play, but on the second line, and the other guy is on the top line, but not on the top power play. Well, no, Nino Niederreiter is on the top power play. Oh, but... sorry. Yeah. So you want Niederreiter. <laughs> it's, it's not like that at all then. Well, I don't know. The, the thing is, Tavo Teravainen seems like a real superstar. Like, he showed us last year as a 64-point guy. Now he's on pace for a 72-point season. So I think I might lean Teravainen just because he seems like the even more sure thing. Though maybe he has a bit of a lower floor since he's not on the top line. That's a tough one, honestly. Try to get both. If I, I had mean, to pick one, give me Teravainen. But right now, it'd be really tough to let go of Niederreiter. Well, the thing with Niederreiter is I don't think we can judge him based on what he was doing in Minnesota. He was buried. He wasn't the coach's favorite. And that clearly showed how they valued him when they traded him for Victor Rask. He's a new player in Carolina. He's getting five more shots per 60 minutes, almost six more shots per 60 minutes. That's an Eric Carlson-like jump that we discussed at the top of the show. His individual expected goals rate has doubled at five on five. Uh, and both these numbers are higher than Tavo Teravainen's number. So I like Niederreiter. I mean, he's shooting a little high 15%. I don't know if he can sustain that. But if he's playing top line, top power play, and showing a brand new side to him, like I agree, Elon, that Teravainen is probably like the higher valued commodity or asset. So if you're choosing one or the other and one's languishing in free agency, Teravainen's going to be the harder guy to get a week from now. But Niederreiter is, I think, equally a must-own. Yeah, I think sometimes you just have to answer these fantasy questions. I know people want us to give them, like, a definitive answer. Sounds like we're saying coin flip. We're saying it could go either way. So that's the best that you could do, and you could decide which one. Carolina right now is in a playoff spot. Good point by Brett in the chat room here. Like, they should, they are the type of team that should be making a trade to bolster things. Imagine if they get Matt Duchesne. All of a sudden, he's centering a second line playing with Tara Vinen, and then, you know, you're looking at a great situation. So we'll see. They've already been saying that they were going to trade Furland, so we'll see who they get back for him. Uh, okay, Brian, that has been a really fun morning show of Keeping Carlson. A great way to wake up and chat with you for a couple hours about fantasy hockey. Thanks to everyone who joined us live in the chat room and everyone listening to the show. Brian, did you know we're approaching 1 million total downloads for Keeping Carlson? since When did we start again? 2013, I think? Somewhere around there. Yeah, it's been a while. We're approaching a million downloads. So thanks to all of you and all of your downloads to help us get it doesn't we don't get anything for it. It'd be really cool if like someone sent us a, a package in the mail with some sort of watch or a trophy or something. But I'll just <laughs> take the number on the Podbean website that tells us this. So yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you like the show. We'll be back to you as always next week, though. A little bit of a note is again, we're gonna be recording at a strange time. We're gonna be recording Monday night instead of Sunday night, and Brian's not gonna be there. Brian's Sorry. got very Brian's got very important work stuff going on, and I'm going to be recording with Peter Harling from Dauber Prospects. So we'll do our typical stuff. I'll go over the news from the week, but also I'll try to get those prospect questions and insights from him. So you could send us your questions that you want for Peter Harling. We'll try to get them to him. Ask Uh, him about Travis Sanheim. 
I, I definitely will. I definitely <laughs> plan to. Okay. So uh, what else should I say? You could uh, follow us on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. You give us a five-star review on iTunes. We would appreciate that. You could still support us as a patron. You don't have to sign up for a year, right? Sign up, support us for a month. Give us $5. We'll help you through your fantasy playoffs. And also you could feel good that you're uh, supporting this podcast and you get to join our Facebook group and all the other perks. You can learn all about that. KeepingCarlson.com slash patron. But with that, Brian, let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? Okay, I'm gonna, but first, can we just, like, I'm looking back at our last episode, and we titled it after Josh Levo. I feel like it's irresponsible and a lack of accountability to mention just how poorly his week went after we pumped his tires on the show. He had seven shots over four games, no points. Yeah, and it looks like he still played yesterday with Peter Pedersen and uh, Brock Besser. I think the problem is Vancouver hasn't been scoring. They got shut out by Anaheim, for Ugh. goodness sakes. Kevin so, Boyle. That's the problem, I guess. Lightning in a boil. <laughs> yeah, so Levo, you know, you never he's still top line, top power play last game, so he could get you a point next week. But uh, yeah. yeah, obviously didn't work out for that stream. We will try not to jinx whoever we name the episode after this week, who I'm going to try and make somebody on my opponent's fantasy team, just in case. Yeah, okay, so let's cue the outro music <laughs> now, because I didn't do it before. Go. All right, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest one, Justin L., and potentially you. This was research with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Corsica, Natural Statric, Evolving Hockey, Charting Hockey, HockeyGoldies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, NHL Names, and Yahoo! Brian, I don't believe that you used all these things. You just have a list, right? You're not, like, checking every week to see which ones you used, right? No, I legitimately used all of these resources. Damn, what a hard, hardest working man in podcasting right here, Brian Kong, with a baby. With he's got a, you guys don't even know. He's like got a main job and a side job and a baby and this crazy. Great job as always, Brian. Looking forward to talking to you in a couple weeks. Looking forward to talking to all of you listeners in a week, along with Peter Harling. Yeah, and you can join us live Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time, keepingcarlson.com slash live. I can't wait to listen to you and Peter's episode. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun.